Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Bear. The most evil corporation in the world. Well, that's a topic that was voted in this week by our Patreon supporting space lizards to be examined. But is Bear really evil? Are they truly any more or less evil than so many other global corporations today? Is some level of evil just business as usual? When it comes to life in America, and I would imagine virtually every other nation, if not literally every other nation, we tend to support and rely on corporations as consumers of their products, even if we strongly assume that they might be doing some shady shit. Even when we know they're doing a lot of terrible stuff or have done terrible stuff, we often overlook it. And I'm certainly no exception. I assume, for example, that at least some of the minerals mined and then used in the laptop I do my research on and the phone I use to post to socials, text my kids, talk to my wife, make my entire life work, probably have come from conflict zones like the DRC, but I still use that tech. I could switch to a competitor, but I'm assuming they also probably use those same minerals, sometimes likely mined from the Congo or a a similar place. Or if not, they for sure use something that came from a a sweatshop, a a big corporation relies on, or or the rough equivalent. Actually, I looked out and happened to find out uh, this week that Apple uses the least conflict minerals of any major tech company by quite a bit. I use an iPhone and all of our editing and research stations here are Mac-based. But what if that wasn't the case? Would I have really completely just switched everything? At the cost of tens of thousands of dollars and then take months to get comfortable with the new operating system. I mean, I would love to say, oh, fuck yeah, of course I would do that. But would I really? I mean, some companies are better than others, but are any big tech companies truly immune from supporting some kind of exploitation somewhere? Is it even possible in the globally integrated economy that we live in to figure out where all the components come from, who mines them, how much they get paid, how they're treated, how they're shipped, how those employees that are shipping things get paid or treated, how the people who work at the factories that either refine the minerals and other components for use or assemble them, uh, etc., get paid slash treated? Is getting components from China really that much better than getting things from uh, conflict zones like the Congo? 
Can you make your life work without using anything made in less than 100% ethical way? Can you afford to buy nothing but products, tech, food, or otherwise that are created in the most ethical ways compared to their competitors? Based on what I've researched in the past regarding average wages, cost of living, and the prices I see for items labeled as organic or fair trade, etc., there's no way most people can live that way. Since you are listening to this podcast, aren't you using something that has at least some of its parts either mined in, made in, or shipped from some place where people are getting fucked over in a way that uh, would not be legal or accepted in the country you likely live in based on our audience demographic stats? Do you ever watch Disney movies? Go to their theme parks? Buy any of their licensed merch? They have a long history of business dealings considered shady by many, and so do so many other corporations. All of us either buy, use, wear, eat, drink, or watch something that was made in a way that is not 100% totally ethical, at least by commonly accepted first world standards. We all also in some way support organizations or people that buy, use, wear, etc. shit that is not 100% ethically sourced, created, transported, etc. Important to start this week's topic there. To establish that while, yes, Bear has certainly done some terrible, terrible things, uh, whose wealthy corporate hands are truly completely clean. I mean, take Ben and Jerry's, the most ethical giant corporation I can think of off the top of my head. They have long topped lists of the most ethical corporations in the world. Sure seems like they always try and do what's right. Uh, And even they have gotten into trouble in the past with watchdog groups for claiming, for example, that their ingredients are all natural, that their milk always comes from cows milked in caring dairy farms where they have more room to roam or treated more humanely, no hormones, etc. Uh, several years ago in 2018, a watchdog group found that a lot of their milk came from the same damn crowded dairy farms as most of their competitors' dairy products and that their products contained the uh, pesticide glyphosate. In response to the press backlash around this, they removed the words all natural from their packaging. Glyphosate, uh, the main active ingredient in Roundup. And Roundup is owned by, to twist all of this into our topic of the week, Bear. And Bear owns Roundup after uh, buying the company that developed Roundup, a company whose name topped more lists of evil companies before these two merged than Bear, Monsanto. And on May 13th, 2019, in just one of many lawsuits, uh, uh, so many are still ongoing, a jury in California ordered Bear to pay a couple, two million, two billion, excuse me, in damages later cut to 87 million on appeal uh, after finding that the company had failed to adequately inform consumers of the possible uh, carcinogenesis Genesity, woo, tough word, of Roundup due to glyphosate. And in 2017, the Organic Consumers Association announced that it found traces of glyphosate in 10 of 11 samples of Ben & Jerry's ice cream flavors, although it levels far below the ceiling set by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Of course, it's in Ben & Jerry's ice cream. It's in everything. According to a U.S. government CDC study completed this past summer, more than 80% of Americans have a widely used herbicide lurking in their urine. Most of us are literally ingesting that shit on a daily basis. Unless you're living exclusively off of uh, food grown in your own garden and you or none of your neighbors are using commercial pesticides, you probably have glyphosate in your urine right now. And I point all this out again to illustrate how damn hard it is to stay away from either the bad shit a giant corporation has done or is doing or is relying on another big company that's doing some bad shit. It is nearly impossible to avoid relying on some of the giant corporations around us, our lives typically depend on some level of reliance, advertising on Google, clicking on any type of ad promoted by Google, using Amazon to sell something or buy something, taking life-saving medication made by a corporation with a lot of nasty skeletons in their closet, grabbing some plastic bottle of water when you're traveling and thirsty at the store that may end up in the ocean or may have been made in a way that gave its workers cancer, 
possibly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Giant corporations make the materials that go into the clothes we wear, uh, that make our homes and vehicles, the pesticides and fertilizers that help produce most of the food we eat, almost all of it, the medicines we rely on to stay healthy, and on and on and on. And who are massive publicly traded corporations beholden to? Their shareholders. And what keeps those shareholders from selling their stock and sending the overall stock price plummeting? The same thing that keeps a corporation financially healthy and able to continue to employ its employees, profit, profit, profit. And also customer-based expansion, which then leads to more profit. And if the stock price plummets because profit and or expansion is down, company leadership might just flee and hitch their wagons to different companies that will make their stock option compensation packages worth them dedicating some of their working years to that company. And if a big company loses all their best employees and is hurting when it comes to profit, well, bankruptcy now becomes a, a very real possibility, if not inevitable. To avoid this fate, massive publicly traded corporations are driven in ways more exaggerated than with mom and pop companies to make massive amounts of profit. And that drive so often leads to less than the most moral decisions. It's a sad fact that profit incentivizes immorality. A sweatshop makes sneakers a lot cheaper than the factory where the workers get a proper wage and maybe even benefits. Getting the three T's of tin, uh, tantalum, tungsten, and also gold, necessary minerals for making so much of our tech work, uh, getting it all from the Congo is a lot cheaper than it is to get it uh, from a place with a government that isn't insanely corrupt and doesn't use mineral profits to fuel continual bloodshed, a place that doesn't have mine owners who abuse and exploit their workers. If a certain level of corruption in the giant corporate word world uh, seems almost inevitable, why is anyone focused on bear being so evil? I did a quick Google of the world's most evil corporations. And the first hit was a website called, not surprisingly, the top10s.com. This particular list randomly was uh, 83 entries long. Not sure how that fits in the top 10 website, but whatever. <laughs> Another evil business tricking me. Anyway, number one on this list, Monsanto. Number 13, Bear. Interestingly, Google was number 14. They must not exactly love it, uh, how, how people can use their search engine to easily dig up dirt on them. Monsanto and Bear together stand atop another list. And one or the other company stands atop many, many others, far more than any other companies based at least on what I came across. So who are these companies that are now one in the same company? Today, Bayer AG is a German multinational pharmaceutical and biotechnology corporation and one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Started in 1863 as a dye-making company, quickly cornered a global market. The versatility of aniline chemistry led Bayer to expand their business into, an, into other areas. And in 1899, Bayer launched the compound, ooh, big word coming again, aceta, <laughs> acetyl salicylic acid under the trademark name aspirin but not but not long after bear began working on aspirin and after a detour into manufacturing and marketing actual heroin world war one and the depression plunged it into debt and the way it would recover from this in the 1940s is pretty fucking dark and the darkness would not end after the 1940s in many ways bear's history is a legacy of many different kinds of shady shit from human experimentation to deliberately selling contaminated products to all kinds of fraud these days, Bayer is headquartered in Leverkusen, Germany, and their areas of business include pharmaceuticals, consumer healthcare products, agricultural chemicals, seeds, and biotechnology products. Special emphasis on the biotechnology part since they acquired Monsanto. Monsanto, founded in 1901, originally made food additives like saccharin before expanding into industrial chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and agricultural products. Monsanto now famous or infamous for making some controversial and highly toxic chemicals like polychlorinated 
biphenyls, now banned and commonly known as PCBs. Much easier to say. And the herbicide Agent, Agent Orange, which was used by the U.S. military in Vietnam, directly causing hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese citizens to die of cancer, also killing hundreds of thousands of U.S. veterans. Monsanto commercialized Roundup herbicide, another cancerous agent of death in the 1970s, and began developing genetically modified corn and soybean seeds in the 1980s, freaking out billions of people over more health concerns. And when Monsanto and Bayer combined in 2018, a lot of the world's corporate watchdogs let out a collective sigh of, oh, fuck, this is really bad. Groups like the Farmers Union, Food and Water Watch, Friends of the Earth, and many others didn't mince words when it came to condemning their deal. Organic Consumers Association called the acquisition a marriage made in hell. Is that true? Is Bear Monsanto really the most evil company in the world? Are they actually evil at all? All this and more in today's, yes, I'm a capitalist, but one that favors some level of regulation since it doesn't take much digging or critical thinking to see that unchecked capitalism is a very bad idea for the common human. In this, should we rage against these machines, big corporations sure do not always have our best interests at heart, addition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Dan Cummins, Master Sucker, Papa John's top unofficial marketer. Uh, not Doomsday cult leader quite fucking yet. And are you are listening to Time Suck. I started to say something else there. I don't know what it was. Hail Nimrod, Hail Lucifina, Praiseable Jangles, and uh, Dance Like Only Kenny Loggins is watching Triple M. A couple quick announcements, and then knowledge and jokes, many of which may be crude. Not for sure, but I know the guy who hosts his show, and I know for a fact that he says a lot of naughty shit. Uh, Four cities already sold out in the 2023 Burn It All Down Theater Tour. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Second shows now have been officially added to Boise, Seattle, St. Louis, Uh, Like I said last week, few other markets don't have many tickets left. Uh, Not many left at all in Sacramento, San Antonio, or Philadelphia. Denver also selling fast. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, Thanks to everyone who came out in Dania and West Palm Beach. Hope you were not affected uh, too much by Hurricane Ian after I left. Had a great time with those who came out. Want to go back now. Great crowds. Uh, Have spent very little time in South Florida and had a lot of fun. I want to try and get more people to come out next time. Uh, all tour dates, including Boston this weekend, Louisville, Austin, Portland, Oregon, and more at dancomans.tv. A uh, quick merch announcement. Last week, we saw a reanimated Albert Fish at the store. This week, a creature of the night as we enter October. Bonus sucks, Subject 19, Richard Ramirez in his vampire costume. Love it. Halloween uh, quickly approaching, so head on over. Grab some spooky threads at badmagicmerch.com. Uh, speaking of Halloween, tickets on sale now for a new live Scared to Death show. New live virtual show, Scared to Death, Live Haunted Halloween. True Tales of Hallow's Eve Horror 2. Uh, telling Halloween-themed horror tales that will only be told Thursday, October 27, 6 p.m. Pacific time, but then will live online for seven days more for anyone who wants to grab a ticket. So you can watch it on Halloween or watch it again on Halloween. It's going to be a live chat room to enjoy the show with others, uh, ask us questions, etc., Scared to Death Live, Haunted Halloween, True Tales of Hallow's Eve Horror 2. Go to badmagicmerch.com for ticks and accompanying merch. Some badass designs in there. So fun last year. Going to be more fun this year. Uh, Real quick, thanks for uh, being cool with an unedited draft of the Carlin episode. Sneaking out last week for some of you. Still ironing out a a new production flow with a new crew doing things a new way over here. Some of you got a little peek behind the curtain on how we make the sausage. And I love how you handled it. 
And that's it. But now I got a fucking show to do. Showbiz. Uh, now on to Bear, the so-called most evil company in the world. Great way to start off the, the month of October with a topic that's so evil. But again, is it really that evil? I mean, they did first market aspirin around the world, soothing the pain of hundreds and hundreds of millions of people overall. And they have created a market of other good medications that have soothed pain uh, elsewhere and saved lives. I mean, right now I'm on Claritin. I'm on Claritin D at this moment. Uh, I've taken it for years. I've tried other allergy medications, but for me, nothing works as well as Claritin. Sometimes I take the regular kind. Sometimes I take the decongestant kind and I feel the most clear-headed I ever feel. Would hate to not have this medication in my life. Would for sure not be as productive. So bear, to me, not all bad. And they do make a lot of other wonderful medicine for a lot of other people. Easy to get bogged down in Bear's long history of controversies, from experimenting on human beings during World War II, I mean, fucking evil, uh, to push a medication they uh, knew was infected with HIV on people, also evil, or to them developing and marketing heroin in the early 20th century. Possibly, or probably evil. Some of these controversies, like the heroin thing, uh, just a result of the company approximating the best medical knowledge they had at the time without knowing what side effects were or how dangerous the substances that were prescribing could be. Others, like the human experimentation thing, uh, hard not putting that in the category of evil. They knew. They had to know that that shit was horrific. But also, plain devil's advocate, if you were a corporation in Nazi Germany, you kind of couldn't escape supporting the Nazi regime in some ways without great risk to personal safety, right? Uh, That was a basic tenet of the Nazis' fascism, that every branch of the economy, the culture, manufacturing, education, everything went to support the Nazi party or else. Not that that makes what they did excusable. It doesn't. Its execs could have fled rather than join in on human experimentation for sure. They could have risked capture and execution. They could have tried, just pointing out that they didn't decide randomly to get into human experimentation out of fucking nowhere. Wasn't their idea to, uh, to kick that off. What they did was different than, say, living in a country where it is not acceptable to do that and then just going rogue and kidnapping people and uh, putting them in a laboratory. We'll get into exactly what they did do in that regard later in the episode to determine just how much blood ended up on their hands. Also, a division of the German pharmaceutical company Bayer knowingly sold blood clotting agents infected with HIV to Asia and Latin America months after withdrawing them from Europe and the U.S. in the 1980s. I mean, some execs knew when they were doing that that it was real bad, the people were probably going to die. Uh, and that was not happening under Nazi rule, far removed from it. They knew they were sentencing innocent people to death, and they did it anyway, all for an insanely profitable company to make more profit. Hard to look past that. And there have been other modern scandals that get pretty hard to overlook. And then there's uh, their recent acquisition of Monsanto, a company that has also definitely done some super shady shit, like bullying its own customer base a company that has continually and knowingly poisoned areas and people with toxic chemicals and then refused to take responsibility for it, hiding behind an army of lawyers, seemingly waiting for people that made sick to die, uh, run out of money to fight them with in court. The sad truth is that there are a lot of people in big corporations, people who have already made enough money to never have to push or sell anything again ever and still live a life of luxury until the day they die, who do not give a fuck about the average consumer. People who, like Lyle Menendez... Just care about business. Do you like business? Business, business, call 1-800-BUSINESS If you like some business 800 with the one in front Business, business, Princeton Money, profit Business, so much profit Business, spicy chicken wings Menendez in 
investment enterprises for some business cash flow stock options revenue balance sheet fixed expense cannibalize return on investment acceptable loss fiscal calendar money 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 sorry that's old callback to the menendez investment enterprise sponsor i can weirdly get lost in that uh but there are sadly a lot of people who seem to mostly just care about business no but about making money about making more money when they already have so much fucking money at the expense of a lot of people. Or they don't care if it's at the expense of a lot of people. Right? For companies as wealthy as Bear, it seems as if doing something terrible and then paying quick settlements or losing a few lawsuits later sometimes makes ledger balance sense if the profit outweighs the potential litigation. Got a real dumpster fire of a topic today. Let's really get into this, uh, at moments, enraging mess. This isn't the first time uh, we've talked about some shitty companies with far less than ideal business practices before on TimeSuck. We talked about Amway, other predatory multi-level marketing businesses, places where customers have to buy in and then recruit people beneath them who kick up a portion of their profits and so on and so forth. Hail the good God, Amway, maker of miraculous pursue disinfectant cleaning wipes, proving to kill all manner of viruses for only $6.50 per package of 50 wipes, but not available for purchase in the state of Maine, which reads is a bit shady. Anyway, today we're talking about business practice, a lot more heinous than manipulating people into thinking that anyone can get rich as long as they just sell enough soap and toothpaste and shit and encourage others to do the same. Uh, Some of the shit we'll cover today seems like something out of a sci-fi or dystopian novel. Maybe because sci-fi, uh, you know, is where evil corporations are most often discussed and exposed. According to Angela Allen, writing for The Atlantic, the idea of an evil corporation is deeply embedded in the landscape of contemporary culture, populating films, novels, video games, and more. These fictional corporations, like by and large, from the 2008 Pixar movie wall are credited with destroying the earth, taking over all sectors of business and government, and possessing a near-unlimited greed. Originally a frozen yogurt manufacturer, by and large, expanded over the years until it acquired literally every other business and organization on earth. Its primary concern? Ensuring humanity's right to spend, spend, spend! Fiction is littered with these evil corporations, like Severance's uh, Lumen, a clear allegory for Amazon. I've heard nothing but good things about that series, by the way. I know uh, uh, Logan's been watching it. There's a literal uh, evil corp from Mr. Robot, the Simpsons Globex, Robocop's Omni Consumer Products, Spider-Man's Oscorp, Terminator's Skynet, the Umbrella Corporation from the Resident Evil franchise, just to name a few. Why are evil corporations like Delos Incorporated and Westworld so prominently featured in sci-fi movies? Because there actually is good reason for the world's most imaginative storytelling minds to be concerned. And for the rest of us as well. Collectively, humanity has a massive amount of anxiety regarding what private corporations are, have done, or might be doing to us and to the planet. But this wasn't always the case. In the 1950s, popular culture still largely imagined the state and not non-governmental private agencies as the enemy of the citizen. As fiction such as Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 or Philip K. Dick's short story, The Minority Report, suggest. Easy to see where these fears came from, right? In the aftermath of World War II and the wake of the Cold War, anxieties over authoritarianism flourished. Post-war, post-war culture worried about dystopian states legislating the end of personal freedom. Corporations were merely a supporting player in the war against individualism. That's not to say that at the time, corporations didn't have their critics as public intellectuals like C. Wright Mills and John Kenneth Galbraith warned against the rising political influence 
of private enterprises. In the eyes of some, seven decades ago, corporations were already lulling workers into a collective conformity. As described in William White's 1956 book on management, The Organization Man. While America once valued individualism, he argued, the new class of American worker was now committed to groupthink, a term White coined in a 1952 article for Fortune magazine. He described how corporations transform workers into mere cogs in the machine, unable to think for themselves or take responsibility for their own actions. And some in the 1950s uh, didn't, frankly, uh, give a fuck about this. They didn't care about this possibility, right? I take care of the machine. The machine takes care of me. Where's the problem? What's wrong with a good job with a pension, a house in the suburbs, two cars and a boat, and enough disposable income to take the family on an annual vacation? Others, however, saw reasons to be afraid of this security. A lot of the literature of the period reflects these anxieties. As Sloan Wilson's The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, published in 1955, and Richard Yates, gotta have a Richard in this uh, episode, gotta have a dick, always gotta have a dick. Uh, Revolutionary Road, published in 1961, chronicled the white-collar workers' dissatisfaction with corporate culture. But in most of this literature, while corporations might have been seen as soul-sucking on a personal level, right? they weren't exactly evil. Uh, headed into the mid-1960s, though, that attitude seemed to change. In 1962, Milton Friedman published Capitalism and Freedom, in which he identified that the only obligation of corporations, indeed their sole reason for existing, was to make money for shareholders. Anything else, he argued, would simply be irresponsible. Friedman argued that companies existed to generate money, period. And he thought this was a good thing. Some real Michael Douglas, Wall Street mentality, right? Greed is good. He believed that individuals act in self-interest and a corporation that was made up of a bunch of individuals would be mutually beneficial to those individuals and to society as a whole. But this didn't mean that Friedman thought that corporations were always a good thing. He also argued that letting executives decide whether their companies were acting in morally responsible ways or not would threaten the autonomy of individuals. If social responsibility as a category was left up to corporations and not society as a whole, that could lead to corporations wielding state-like power. For instance, to price hiking on products that consumers needed to live, selling faulty or untested products to an unknowing consumer base, or protecting their own reputations over anything else. And all of that has been done in many instances already here in America and elsewhere, of course. Friedman worried if corporations were in charge, what would be deemed as right, as wrong? And how would money interact with that decision-making process? And science fiction would quickly pick up on these concerns. In 1973's cult classic film, Soylent Green, Loosely based on a 1966 sci-fi novel called Make Room, Make Room, right and wrong became blurry in one of the film's early scenes. When William Simonson, a member of the Soylent Corporation's board of directors, is about to be killed by a hired hand because the assassin says his knowledge has become a risk to the company's interests. After delivering this uh, explanation to Simonson, the befuddled killer asks, then this is right. No, Simonson responds, necessary. It's the same response that the Soylent Corporation would give, meaning that all ethics had been turned over to companies, not individuals with individual values. And as a threat to the success of its newest product, Simonson must be eliminated. He's threatening a profit. However extreme, Soylent Green's suggestion that corporations conspire against the broader public good was undoubtedly motivated by real concerns over the effects of unregulated corporate power. Released only three years after the founding of the Environmental Protection Agency, Soylent Green depicts a dystopian future uh, set in 2022 in which industrial capitalism has left Earth overpopulated, overheated, and underfed. Meanwhile, the Soylent Corporation profits from its access to the resources the rest of the population is denied. 
Reminds me of a multitude of giant corporations buying rights to fucking drinking water around the globe, right? The past few decades, scary shit. Outwardly, the Soylent Corporation acts as a benevolent supporter of the world's population, providing much of the world's food supply as well as euthanasia clinics for those too tired to go on living. But later in the film, spoiler alert, these so-called compassionate gestures are revealed to be completely hollow. The bodies killed in the euthanasia clinics are processed and fed to the starving masses. I should probably finally watch this movie. Uh, God knows I've quoted uh, this scene enough. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell them silent greed is people. We gotta stop them somehow. Silent greed is people. I've randomly yelled that many times in my life. I'm not sure where I first heard that quote. Uh, in the comments below this video clip on YouTube, part of Google's evil empire, damn you alphabet, uh, the top comment as I uh, watched the video was, I remember back in school in the 70s, every once in a while in the lunchroom, someone would always yell, Soylent Green is people. That is funny. I would laugh my ass off in that cafeteria. I can picture some lunch ladies rolling their eyes right now, maybe laughing themselves. But also... I can see a giant corporation absolutely fucking doing something that horrific if the dollar amount was right. And the fear of litigation math still made profit sense, right? For, for, the corp- for some corporations, morality wouldn't play into it. Uh, movies like Soylent Green show the dangers of corporations that are only committed to profits, similar to fictional companies in the Jurassic Park and Alien franchises. When it comes to matters of right and wrong, these corporations, excuse me, and real life ones, are always incentivized to come down on the side that makes them the most money. And since they're so powerful, they can afford to get away with that possible, uh, with, the, with the possible punishments that come from acting unethically if they should get caught. And this has been the case to some degree, for sure, with Bayer and Monsanto for decades. Furthermore, corporations aren't incentivized to solve the problems that their products fix, because if they do, who will continue to buy their products? Right, the conspiracy crowd's ears just perked up with good reason here. If you're making a lot of money treating cancer, would you really want to suddenly start selling the cure? Not saying that is happening, but I do understand how that is a concern. Uh, personally, I think that if anyone discovered the cure for cancer, whatever corporation they work for would sell the ever-loving shit out of that. Possibly, if not probably, out, out, at uh, outrageous prices, make a ton of short-term money, then reinvest that money in, I don't know, maybe fucking over humanity's clean water access by gobbling up those access rights or something. I think they might do something ethically murky, but I don't think they would actually hide the cure. Or maybe I just hope they wouldn't. Too much money to be made, destroying their cancer-treating competitors' ability to continue to profit in that market, though. Too much incentive for market dominance and pleasing shareholders with that cure. Come on. Those, are gonna, those, cancer, those cancer cure shares are going to skyrocket for a little while, at least. Uh, when it comes to Baron Monsanto, it is important to realize that the outlandish depictions of evil corporations in science fiction uh, don't always match up in real life. So, so gauge your expectations for what's coming forward. They're not likely doing something as bad as hiding the cancer cure or turning people into soylent green meals. While science fiction can illustrate the ideas and principles behind profit-hungry companies, also important to know what and how the actual real-life companies are doing. Though not as salacious as grinding people into into little uh, meals, uh, except for a part of Bear's history that actually is that dark, uh, some of these activities should certainly raise our eyebrows and you know have us thinking critically about who's looking out for us and who just sees us as a source of potential revenue. So how are we going to cover this mess today? To cover Bear and later its connection with Monsanto, we're going to do things uh, a little differently than normal, especially lately. Uh, rather than do a timeline and get bogged down with all kinds of info about how the company structured itself and expanded and stuff like that, technical shit that gets a little, uh, well, boring, uh, we'll do more of a vignette-style overview of the history of Bear. 
More on the top end about Bear's founding before we get into its major controversies along the way. And then we'll dive into Monsanto, which Bear acquired in 2018. Its connection with Monsanto, uh, which uh, has a very controversial history of its own, has led people to dub Bear the most evil company in existence, made up of two devils to create one super duper evil corporation. Makes me think of Dr. Evil from the Austin Powers film series, right? Head of the uh, evil fictional corporation VirtuCon Industries. $100 billion. Uh, Finally, we'll compare with a uh, pair of other companies to see if Bear really is an outlier, if it really is more evil than other companies. So what is the Bear Corporation? Well, the company was founded in uh, Barmen, a former city in Western Germany, now part of Wuppertal, by the entrepreneur Frederick Bear and his partner, Johann Westcott, on August 1st, 1863. Uh, Westcott was 42. Bear was 193. No, he was, he was 38. Uh, Bear had been working in the dye industry for about two decades. Founding father of the Bear Group, Friedrich, was, uh, uh, Friedrich was born in Barman in 1825 as the son of a silk worker. Uh, Friedrich Bear grew up in a time when the textile industry was flourishing. At the age of 14, he joined the circus and entertained countless audiences by training beagles to work as cat ventriloquists, the cats performing a 20-minute nightly musical while doubling as puppeteers, mice being the living puppets, who, of course, would be eaten at the end of every show. And it was fucking breathtaking. Or he went to work for a chemical dealer, uh, Westenfield and Co. and Barman as, a, as an apprentice. Uh, during his apprenticeship, Bear became familiar with both the fundamentals and the problems of the dyeing trade. By the age of 20, he'd already begun to deal in natural dyes. Three years later, he founded his first sales company and established a European distribution network. He's hustling. Natural dye stuffs initially offered by Bear were extracted from dye woods due to their high quality. Bear was able to do business with these products in the European capitals of London, Brussels, and St. Petersburg, and as far away as uh, New York. His partner, Johann Westcott, was born in 1821 as the son of a natural yarn dyer, uh, Engelbert Westcott. He came from one of the oldest families in the Barman district of Wuppertal. At age 16, he followed in his father's footsteps and learned the dyer trade. Within just a few years, he became the owner of a dyeing business himself, and the quality of his products soon made him financially independent. And soon this pair, who became friends, went into business together. With Bear managing the business side, Westcott looking after the technical side. Doesn't appear to be anything too uh, illuminati or nefarious about their beginnings. Not much seems to be written about the founders. Not much at all, actually. Some of the info has only been written in German, mentions in an old book or two, and it doesn't appear to have been translated to English. So there could be some juicy tidbits I'm missing, but I doubt it. Because if it was that interesting or explosive, with the amount of uh, detractors out there who hate this company... I would think it would for sure be uh, up somewhere in English. At least some info in an article or two. Excuse me. It appears as if they were uh, just two random entrepreneurs amongst many, making a lot of money in an area that was undergoing a big industrial revolution. An area at a time where a lot of people were prospering. Their company would just happen to survive a lot of turmoil and do a lot of shady dealings long after their deaths. If they ever died, those two sleazy fucks might just be hidden in the secret wing of some Bavarian castle or mansion right now. Got their adrenochrome on an IV drip. The blood of eaten children still on their faces. Scared virgins in cages waiting to be ravaged and sacrificed to the devil by these two demonic fucks. Or maybe they just, uh, you know, kept trading identities, pretending to be whoever's currently in charge of Bear. Quasi-immortal vampire-esque monsters. Or maybe, you know, just some uh, old bones and dust in a tumor coffin somewhere. Uh, Their company originally produced synthetic dyes. A hot new commodity at the time. Making those synthetic dye dollars. Dye Deutschmarks. Weird for me to think about how much uh, money there was in dyes. 
I'm not sure anyone is really dominating the, the die trades anymore. It seems to be a variety of smaller players these days, like Abby Color and Philly, who have a pretty fun uh, company slogan, where people come to die. Noise. Uh, when Bear started, uh, the production of these dyes from coal tar derivatives had only been invented a few years previously, opening up a new field of business for the still young chemical industry. The target market was the textile industry, yarn, cloth, clothing, right? Primarily uh, at the time was growing rapidly in the wake of recent industrialization. Rugs, dresses, gloves, hats, blankets, furniture covering, on and on. Various textiles uh, we are constantly wearing or walking, sitting or laying on. Wool, cotton, silk, nylon, linen, all kinds of textile fibers end up getting dyed. Uh, the natural dyes that have been used prior to chemical dyes were scarce and expensive. Right? You need a massive amount of naturally derived pigments, say from uh, flowers, to dye all of a factory's outputs. And getting a fuck ton of flowers, that is expensive. It's a much more fragile business model than a synthetic dye, right? A lot more can go wrong. Some hungry beetles or aphids can show up and destroy your dye source, you know, one season or a late frost or a drought or marigold gremlins, you know, dandelion goblins, uh, evil sunflower wizards uh, can wreak havoc on one's dye supply. You get it. But seriously, a lot of extra variables with a natural source, a lot of extra labor involved. Those flowers don't pick themselves, don't transport themselves to the factory. But now new inventions like the synthesis of the red dye, uh, lizarin, it became the first natural dye to be produced synthetically in 1869, and, and the strong demand for tar dyes led to a boom in brand new chemical companies. Got to find some fucking nerds to replace those flower pickers. Got to trade in shovels and spades for beakers and lab coats. Many dye factories were built at this time, but only innovative companies with their own research facilities and the ability to quickly jump on new and changing opportunities in the international markets would manage to, to survive over the long term. And Bear was one of these companies. There were many. Uh, and it would later expand into the chemical and pharmaceutical markets. The financial foundation for expansion was laid 18 years after the company's founding in 1881, when Bayer was transformed into a joint stock corporation called uh, Farbenfabriken von Friedrich Bayer & Co., uh, which loosely translates into either Satan's corporate dick will be forced into the working man's butthole, or the souls of the weak and poor will be crushed into the greedy grip of Aryan pure-blood profit. Kidding, of course. Or am I? I am. It actually translates into Frederick Bear and company paint factories. <laughs> Gotta say my translation's a uh, little more interesting. Company had been killing it those first two decades as a dye supplier. Its workforce grown in, from just three in 1863 to more than 300 in 1881. And then between 1881 and 1913, Bear developed into a chemical company with international operations. Although dye stuffs remained the company's largest division during that period, new fields of business were emerging, were joining the fold Research and development. Now the bear had accumulated years and years of dye money. They could afford to test out new product ideas in order to create new revenue streams. Pretty standard fare for innovative and forward-thinking corporations, and I, uh, I do respect it. You know, you can go and likely will go from being a major player to a fucking dinosaur real quick in business if you don't evolve and adapt to the times. Very rare to have a successful business model being uh, be built on just basically staying exactly the same year after year, like say uh, In-N-Out Burger. Right. In-N-Out started as a single burger joint, 1948, Baldwin Park, California, just east of LA. After a few years of tinkering around, now they've been making the same burgers, basically the same way, had the same basic business model for over 70 years. And in that time, they've grown from one busy location to over 330 very busy locations. Their goal is not to move suddenly into other areas. You know, They're not going to suddenly try and corner the fried chicken market or toothpaste or the mountain bike markets. Just keep making the same burgers the same way, you know, the people have loved for decades. Consistency, no evolution, and change. 
kind of key to their present and future success. Would be funny though, to suddenly see an In-N-Out burger, uh, you know, add like a, a mountain bike sales and repair shop. Just <laughs> to see him do that just corporation-wide. You can go to In-N-Out Burgers for burgers, shakes, fries, and mountain bikes. Grab a tasty, fresh, never frozen quality all-American beef double cheeseburger fries and a milkshake today. And then ride home and burn those calories off in style on a new In-N-Out Trail Demon 10-speed mountain bike with 29-inch tires, short chain stays, keeping the rear end nice and sporty. That classic animal-style suspension platform keeping everything responsive and direct power transfer for improved performance. Free large cheese fries with every bike. But really, normal to innovate. Uh, I personally, uh, you know, uh, had to innovate. I've been lucky enough to be able to now jump into theaters in a number of markets uh, to do stand-up shows, but only because I took a lot of time away from stand-up, started working over 40 hours a week over five years ago on just podcast stuff. Just building a podcast business that has nothing to do with stand-up. Uh, had I not taken my attention off of stand-up to try and find new income and marketing streams, I wouldn't be able to sell enough tickets to be able to still do stand-up in clubs or theaters. I have friends that have known comics who started around the time I did who are very funny and their careers are basically done now because they just refused to evolve, refused to fuck with social media or podcasts or any other means to build an audience outside of showing up for stand-up shows and going on some auditions. Anyway, evolving and breaking into new business areas, not evil. Early bear, just being smart here. Just diversifying, just taking risks and working harder than I had to do if it were to choose to remain in just one lane. Uh, Bear begins to become the international company it is today through its early research labs, especially the first, founded by Carl Diesburg in Wuppertal, Germany. Oh, Carl Diesburg in Wuppertal. Also the location of the company's headquarters from 1878 until 1912. Carl was hired in 1883 when he was fresh out of school, just 22 years old and fucking evil right out the gate. I mean, really evil. Carl is exactly where things take a dark turn for Bear. He was an obvious agent of the underworld. He showed up to his job interview carrying a big sack, plum full. You're going to want to sit down for this. Baby heads. Yeah. Human, freshly ripped off baby heads. When the shocked Bear executives interviewed him, asked what in God's name was the meaning of this, he simply said, and I quote, whatever it takes. I gathered these baby heads on the way to this interview to prove I'm willing to do whatever it fucking takes to bring untold riches to this great Aryan corporation. Long live bear! And then he unleashed a maniacal evil. (laughs) And he slammed the fucking baby heads down the table. No, of course not. Uh, He didn't seem evil at all when he showed up. But Diesberg would climb up the ranks from his research lab and eventually become the head of bear and lead Germany's chemical weapons charge in World War I. Is that evil? Maybe not, actually. Uh, He only did that because of an ammunition shortage in Germany due to a British naval blockade, not because he just really wanted to fuck up a bunch of soldiers with some new chemicals. Uh, It was done to help his country win the war, not as a big cash cow for bear. They actually took a financial beating in World War I. Uh, If making weapons for your country is evil, then every employee of every company that's part of the U.S. military-industrial complex, wouldn't they also be evil? Every scientist who worked on the Manhattan Project helped end World War II. They got to be evil then too, uh, as would basically all other military innovators, whoever first, uh, you know, used gunpowder to hurt someone, whoever designed the first sword for battle, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure some will disagree, but I'm not going to casually slap the evil label on Carl for military innovation. Uh, backing up to Carl's beginning now, uh, his research lab would set new standards in industrial research, synthesizing everything from dyes to pharmaceuticals 
including the so-called drug of the century, aspirin, which was developed by one of the scientists working in Diesburg's lab, Felix Hoffman, uh, and put on the market in 18, 1899. Uh, probably developed by Hoffman, actually. Uh, this claim will come into dispute a century later in 1999. Some now think another scientist invented aspirin, Arthur Eichengrun, the guy who invented a successful treatment for gonorrhea that was used for 50 years before the invention of antibiotics. Not worth delving, in into, uh, delving into this debate in this episode. Uh, plenty of people still think Hoffman came up with aspirin. Uh, some other people do think a French dude named Chuck came up with aspirin, not even joking. Uh, the drug may have uh, first been developed in 1853 by a French chemist, Charles Frederick Gerhardt, uh, and then recreated by multiple chemists through different processes before Hoffman discovered a better method of making, oh boy, easier to say aspirin, but I'm going to try and say acetylsalicylic acid. Uh, most historians agree Hoffman did his research and was well aware of the previously used methods of making ASA uh, and thus didn't spontaneously invent the drug, but did come up with a safer and less bitter tasting, uh, you know, specimen, if you will. Uh, however, however, it was exactly created. Hoffman created the formula that would be first marketed world war- worldwide. And Bayer chose to list Hoffman as the inventor on the 1899 U.S. patent of the drug. Hoffman also made a very different, equally famous or infamous contribution to pharmaceuticals heroin he definitely wasn't the first to invent this one but if not for him heroin might not have ever hit the uh, international market at least it would have took uh, a little longer uh the drug that eventually became known as heroin was first created in 1874 by cr alder wright an english chemist who founded the royal institute of chemistry in britain who was just running experiments with morphine and didn't actually do anything with his creation his new drug was not resynthesized until 1897 when it was independently recreated by hoffman hoffman had been tasked by a supervisor to turn morphine into codeine in order to create something less potent and less addictive. Not such an evil task. But instead of making something less potent uh, and less addictive, he created a drug up to two times more potent than morphine and much more addictive. Whoops! Bayer actually created and patented the name heroin, uh, so named because of the heroic feeling it gave users, and sold the drug as a cost suppressant, even marketing it uh, specifically for use on children. One ad urging the use of uh, heroin to treat bronchitis in kids, it was a Spanish ad, shows two unattended children reaching for a bottle of the opiate across the kitchen table. Yeah, I bet they're reaching for it. Little heroin addicts, probably fighting over it too. You know, trading dolls and teacups for it. Uh, another ad showed a mom spoon, uh, spoon feeding uh, heroin to her sickly little girl. Uh, the ad says, the cough disappears. <laughs> heroin ads for children. Uh, Bear even marketed heroin as a cure for morphine addiction before discovering that the body quickly metabolizes it as morphine. Ha! <laughs> That is pretty ridiculous. You having trouble with your morphine addiction? Try heroin. Uh, yeah, it gave people a more fucking powerful morphine high addiction. Uh, so is all this early heroin stuff evil? Well, that depends on what they actually knew about the drug at the time. If they knew that heroin was super dangerous and destructive, especially for children out the gate and marketed it to them anyway, then yeah, super fucked up. That could have uh, or should have landed a lot of people in prison cells for the rest of their lives or led to them, uh, you know, signing out at the end of an executioner's noose or something. So what did they know uh, back at the dawn of the 20th century about heroin? Probably not much, actually, at least not initially. Uh, Chemists could create new drugs then. Uh, We're just figuring that out, but also couldn't yet fully understand their creations. They didn't understand the atomic structure of them. That wouldn't happen until a few decades later in the 1920s. Uh, And cough medicine was needed at the time, as were painkillers. And, uh, you know, these drugs did help with coughs and pain. Uh, did help people in some ways. As for addictive properties of heroin, the first studies didn't seem to reveal how powerfully addictive they w- it was. 
Some scientists did start to sound the alarm, however, just after Bayer began marketing their new drug in 1899. So Bayer probably had some inklings of this stuff is not as good as we're marketing it uh, to be early on. Uh, By the 1930s, heroin would be banned in most nations around the world. And within just a few years of its creation, a huge black market had already developed. Uh, By 1912, heroin had emerged as a recreational drug among young men in New York City. Two years later, addicts were knocking at the doors of New York and Philadelphia hospitals in search of treatment. And Bayer did promote heroin for use uh, use by children as late as 1912. So that's not a good look. If I had to guess, just like how Purdue Pharma hid some early concerns about the dangers of OxyContin, I'm going to guess that Bayer hid some early concerns about the dangers of heroin. So verdict, probably a little bit evil here. Uh, I hesitate from saying certainly because there is a chance it did work better than other drugs at the time in suppressing coughs and helping kids sleep and be free from pain, which could have helped them recover from various illnesses. Trying to be fair here, even though Bear in my gut almost certainly put profit before the health of children and everyone else using heroin for at least a couple of years, especially since those ads directed towards kids I mentioned earlier, part of a uh, marketing campaign directed only to Spanish speaking customers in Spanish speaking countries, right? That's a real bad look. Seems like they pushed that shit way harder outside of their precious motherland than they did inside it, which says a lot to me about how much they knew regarding how dangerous or not this shit was. Uh, by the early 20th century, because of aspirin and heroin, Bear had become a sus- uh, Bear had become, let me start over, a substantial and powerful drug cartel, I mean company, on the international stage. By 1913, over 80% of their revenue came from exports. In the years before World War I, the company expanded into and maintained subsidiaries in Russia, France, Belgium, the UK, the United States. Of the approximately 10,000 people employed by Bayer in 1913, nearly 1,000 worked outside of Germany. Bayer scored an additional early success in pharmacology with the patenting of, oh, uh, phenobarbital, branded as Veneral, an early treatment for epilepsy. But then World War I, which began with the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and on July 28, 1914, put a roadblock in Bayer's uh, further international development. During the conflict, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire, the Central Powers, they fought against Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, Canada, Japan, and the United States, the Allied Powers. At this point, a variety of companies from all over the globe were selling their own version of Bayer's Golden Goose, not heroin which more and more countries were getting concerned about, but aspirin. Wasn't long into the war before England shut out products manufactured by German companies, including Bayer. And by 1915, they voided the trademark Bayer had on the name aspirin. So anyone could use the name on their drugs now. And that fucking stung. That was was a big hit to the pocketbook. And in addition to losing uh, Britain and other markets, Bayer was also having a hard time keeping up with production demand as one of the key ingredients needed for the synthesis of aspirin is phenol, which is also used for explosives. For some crazy reason, the German government, while at war, thought they had first dibs on that shit. Bayer still had a big market in the U.S. and had plants where they could manufacture aspirin for sale in North America, but now they had to find a supplier for phenol since they couldn't get it from Germany. And that's where the great phenol plot came in. The great phenol plot was a clandestine effort by the German government during the early years of World War I to divert American-produced phenol away from the manufacture of high explosives that supported the British war effort. The UK produced it, the US bought it, and the Bayer Corporation in Germany controlled and managed the production. But when World War I broke out, the UK was not inclined to sell phenol to the US branch of a German company. Makes sense. And even if it had wanted to sell it, there just wasn't enough. Phenol wasn't only a potential pain reducer, right? Uh, it could also be uh, used to make explosive. It could be uh, changed into picric acid, which is used in TNT and plenty of other kinds of explosives. 
Even today, chemistry classes and amateur pyromaniacs can extract picric acid, picric acid from aspirin to make explosions. And if you do that and you blow some fingers off or you blow up your neighbor's house, you didn't get that idea listening to this podcast. Uh, since war tends to use a fuck ton of explosives, the availability of phenol, right, goes down. Price goes up. Meanwhile, aspirin availability is running low. Over in America, which was technically neutral, but drifting more towards the British side every day early in the war, Thomas Edison found that without phenol, he was running low on materials to make phonograph discs, a.k.a. music records, early versions of vinyl records. So he solved the problem by manufacturing his own. And then soon he found additional buyers, including a former Bayer employee turned agent for the German Interior Ministry, Hugo Schweitzer. Bayer needed to keep running. Germany needed to keep making explosives. So Schweitzer set up a front corporation that bought all the extra phenol it could from Edison. And the more they bought, the less ended up in the UK to support their war effort against Germany. Pretty fucking brilliant on Schweitzer's part here. At his company's peak, Edison was making tons of this shit every day, supporting both Bayer and the German war effort. The exact working of this arrangement, not officially illegal either. America was uh, still officially neutral. Edison could sell to anyone he chose. And there were people in America who were pro-German, so many that he could have publicly sold phenol to a nation with a fair amount of public support in a war that America officially still had no intention of joining, which meant that covering it up was the worst possible way for him to go about it. The fact that it was done so underhandedly and that it was secretly arranged by the German government instead of a German company is what made it look bad when it came out, and it would come out. One of the conspirators left his briefcase on a train, and American Secret Service agents snatched it, leaked the story to a newspaper, and it became front-page news. Soon the public was in an uproar and speculating heavily. Was it a plot to steal necessary ingredients away from the U.S. military and U.S. industry? Was the phenol going to make medicine or explosives? What other fake businesses were buying up much-needed medical and military supplies for Germany? It was, a, uh, it was a publicity hit for Germany, for Bayer, and for Edison. But this was not evil. It was just a company helping out its nation war. The deal was brought out into the light and Edison openly sold phenol for a short while. Uh, but then before long, public sentiment turned against it so strongly that Edison ended the deal with Germany and he sent the rest of the excess phenol now to the U.S. Army. It would still be another year and a half before America officially joined the war. After the exposure of the great phenol plot, Bayer started setting up more shell corporations and subsidiaries in the U.S. as a way to avoid losing control of their assets in the U.S. if the U.S. entered the war. And doing shit like that has made people wonder ever since, what are they hiding now? What are they up to? What other companies are really part of Bayer? How many subsidiary tentacles do they possess? Where do they reach? When the U.S. did declare war on Germany, Bayer started to be investigated, at which time they shifted their stock to a company that was technically owned by Americans, but still controlled by the same German-American Bayer leaders. This ruse was quickly discovered, and the U.S. government soon took control of Bayer's American holdings. Whoops. And then sold off all of the company's trademarks and patents. Youch. Another big hit to the pocketbook, including their uh, name and logo to a medicine company, Sterling Products Incorporated. Bear wouldn't finally buy back all those rights until 1994. So war, not always great for international business. And World War I, certainly not good for Bear's business. Uh, It would also lead to a black mark on their reputation. Evidence for some that they are evil, or at least were evil. Thanks to new military technologies and the horrors of trench warfare, World War I saw unprecedented levels of carnage and destruction. By the time the war was over and the Allied powers had claimed victory, more than 16 million people, soldiers and civilians alike, were dead. Some total casualty estimates surpass 40 million people. And some of this carnage was thanks to Bear. Near the start of the war, Bear chairman Carl Diesborg, fucking baby head sack guy, 
was one of the three men commissioned by the Ministry of War to find a hopefully deadly weapon to use for the poisonous waste already being produced by chemical industries. The team recommended the use of chlorine gas, which Bayer then helped produce and send to the front lines. Old Diesborg was even there when the weapon was first tested. Under Diesborg's guidance, Bayer created even more deadly gases, starting with uh, phosgene and later mustard gas, paving the way for the types of weapons that the Nazis would use in the Holocaust. And over 60,000 people estimated to have died from exposure to these gases in World War I. And while not all those deaths were at the hands of products created by Bayer, it's possible that none of those deaths would have occurred if it wasn't for Bayer. Uh, Bayer also helped uh, make explosives for Germany. Again, though, overall, despite some new uh, business ventures the government ordered them to carry out, First World War actually hurt Bayer's bottom line substantially. It wasn't getting enough war contracts to cover the company losing most of its foreign assets and export markets. In addition to the uh, to what the U.S., the U.K., and other allies did, opening up patents and or taking their holdings, uh, Bayer's Russian subsidiaries were ex- uh, appropriated by the Bolsheviks as part of their Russian revolution. After all this, sales in 1919 amounted to only two-thirds of the 1913 figure. That insult to injury, the company lost more of its trademark rights related to heroin along with aspirin after the post-World War I Treaty of Versailles in 1919, at which time the drug started to be created by other outside agencies around the world and eventually by drug dealers after it was made illegal starting in the U.S. in 1924. Uh, Germany got its ass kicked in World War I, and so did Bayer. The hyperinflation of Germany's interwar period then exhausted Bayer's financial reserves, and in 1923, Bayer did not pay shareholders a dividend for only the second time in its history after 1885. Bayer almost went uh, went belly up between World War I and World War II. It needed to do something new if it was going to stay afloat. Though the uh, German economy had stabilized and began to recover a bit by 1925, it became clear that the German dye industry wouldn't have its same dominant position in the new world market as more and more companies had opened up internationally. War really fucked up their global expansion plans and international business dealings. In order to remain competitive and gain access to new markets, Bayer joined forces with several other German chemical companies in 1925. They transferred their assets to IG Farben, the new conglomerate included other major companies such as BASF. Bayer now existed as an individual subsidiary within a larger monopoly. By 1926, the powerful conglomerate had three times as many assets as all other chemical companies in Germany combined. More money was able to go into research again, which largely took place at four sites in IG Farben's Lower Rhine Operating Consortium. One of these sites in Leverkusen also became the headquarters for the IG Farben's Pharmaceutical Sales Association and the Bayer Cross was used as the trademark for all of the IG's pharmaceutical products. A lot of the new research was focused on rubber synthesis and modern polymer chemistry. In the early 1930s, uh, Perbenin was developed, and Otto Bayer, no relation to the Bayers who founded the company, invented polyurethanes in 1937. A lot of fucking money in polyurethanes. Uh, Polyurethane is a plastic material which exists in various forms. It can be tailored to either uh, be rigid or flexible, and is material of choice for a broad range of end-user applications such as insulation of refrigerators and freezers, uh, building insulation, cushioning for furniture, and although definitely not popular anymore, in the 1930s and 1940s in much of Northern and Eastern Europe, it was typically used to make a wide variety of different types of pet dildos. In Germany, Poland, Romania, Hungary, Lithuania, Turkey, Greece, especially in Greece, holy shit, do the Greeks love a pet dildo, there was enormous demand for polyurethane pet dildos, uh, polyurethane cat dildos, polyurethane dog dildos, polyurethane parakeet dildos, polyurethane pig and peacock dildos, polyurethane ferret, snake, even polyurethane goldfish dildos. 
for years. It was more common in a lot of places in Europe to dildo your pet than it was to pet it. The belief was that a sexually satisfied pet was a calmer and happier pet. And it does make sense, you know? And a lot of people in high society believe that if you didn't stick a polyurethane dildo in your pet and often and move it around until climax, you were a fucking terrible owner. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully uh, everyone uh, knows I'm joking. Actually, hopefully not. I hope at least one of you has been nodding along to that madness going, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. No, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. <laughs> when in Rome. Yeah, I get it. Uh, but for real, people didn't still do use a lot of polyurethane though. Uh, just maybe not for pet dildos. Uh, most used today in the form of uh, flexible foam. One of the most popular materials uh, used in home furnishings, such as, you know, uh, bedding, uh, carpet underlay, uh, as a cushioning material for upholstered furniture, flexible polyurethane foam works to make furniture more durable, comfortable, and supportive. Uh, Bear continued to make medicine money as well. While it's doing this polyurethane dealings, they continued successful research into drugs to control malaria, working together with Fritz uh, Meech and Joseph Clare. Gerhard Domak discovered the therapeutic effect of the, oh boy, sulfonamide, sulfonamides, with one active ingredient from this class of substances being launched in 1935 as prontostil, a key breakthrough, or prontosil, a key breakthrough in combating infectious diseases for which Domak received the Nobel Prize in 1939. And all this sounds good, and it is. Make no mistake about it. Medicine's bear has developed, uh, have saved many, many lives. But there's also been quite a bit of darkness. And a dark event is just around the corner. After the recovery between 1926 and 1928, the Great Depression finally reaches the Lower Rhine Consortium. Output and employment declined dramatically all around the globe, and bear is, of course, affected. Between 1929 and 1932, jobs are cut by 20%. And there's uh, something else troubling going on in Germany in the 1930s. Anyone able to guess what that might be? Yep, that's right. You did it. Uh, there was a bratwurst shortage. Not enough bratwurst was the worst thing to happen in Germany, Germany in the 1930s and 1940s by far. Probably, probably, no, de- not, no, definitely the worst thing ever. So many hungry Germans forced to eat hot dogs or sandwiches or fried fish, anything but tasty bratwurst because a terrible man named Adolf Hitler was on his way towards becoming uh, infamous for buying up all of Germany's sausages and storing them in a castle guarded by a dragon and letting them spoil in that nasty old dirty dragon castle just because he was an asshole and he liked to watch people suffer while he fiddled with his tiny stash and dildoed his favorite ding-dong dog. Not sure why the dragon didn't eat all the sausages in that very stupid made-up story I just laid out. But he didn't, okay? He didn't want to. And no one can make a dragon eat something they don't want to. Not even Hitler. Not even when he's trying to persuade him with a highly pleasurable, affordable, and durable polyurethane-quality dragon dildo. I have no idea where all that came from. Nazis. Nazis was the other thing going on in Germany in the 1930s. And they didn't have shit to do with Browerst or polyurethane dragon dildos, unfortunately. As we've covered in many, many episodes, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany in 1933. Following a series of uh, electoral victories by the Nazi party, he would rule absolutely first by banning the press from disagreeing with him. Always got to watch out for people uh, who want to fucking ban the press. That's a shitty person every time. And staged events to enable him to pass emergency laws that eroded citizens' rights and paved the way for the Holocaust to happen. Uh, Excuse me. And then he shot himself and died in 1945. And a lot of people cheered. Uh, He effectively smashed the nation's democratic institutions and transformed Germany into a war state intent on conquering Europe for the benefit of the so-called Aryan race. Uh, Bayer and the IG Farben conglomerate it belonged to would be considered essential to Hitler's war. As part of the IG Farben conglomerate, which strongly supported the Third Reich, the Bayer company would be complicit in the crimes of Nazi Germany. Very complicit. As an example of how much IG Farben supported the Third Reich, we got to look no further than the fact that IG Farben held 40% of the stock for the company that manufactured Zyklon B. 
the gas that was used to murder millions of Jews and other minorities in gas chambers. So that is, uh, that's pretty fucking troubling. Backing up to 1936, the National Socialist government began systematically preparing for war. Bear would be essential to those preparations. When the Second World War finally broke out in 1939, the locations of the Lower Rhine Consortium were among the sites of German industry that were considered vital to the war. Uh, Production requirements grew steadily, yet more and more employees were drafted into military service. So foreign and forced laborers from the occupied countries of Europe were brought to work in factories to maintain output levels. IG Farben employees frequently told their slave laborers that if you don't work faster, you'll be gassed. And then even more disturbing was Bayer's role in human experimentation. Bayer and IG Farben would take advantage of the absence of legal and ethical constraints on medical experimentation under Nazi rule to test its drugs on unwilling human subjects. These included paying a retainer to SS physician Helmuth, Helmuth Vetter to test sulfonamide drugs on deliberately infected patients at the Dachau, Auschwitz, and Gusen concentration camps. So who was Helmuth Vetter? In short, big old piece of Nazi shit. Now for a bit lengthier synopsis. Uh, Helmuth Vetter was born on February 21st, 1910 in a rural part of Germany that now belongs to Poland. Ugh. Kidding. Uh, he became a camp physician in Auschwitz and was also a bear scientist. Uh, while in Auschwitz, he conducted experiments in Block 20, the Contagious Diseases Ward from 1942 to 1944 for experimental purposes regarding typhus, typhoid fever, paratyphoid diseases, diarrhea, tuberculosis of the lungs. I don't know what other kind of tuberculosis there is. Uh, scarlet fever and more. Vetter would choose patients with the said diseases in various stages. The patients were then administered various doses of medicine for the same disease to see if the medicine was toxic. The patients were called the experimental group. Uh, also, the patients were refused any other medicine than that prescribed, even if, uh, you know, doctors knew that other medicine would help them because, you know, this uh, Vetter and others didn't care about these patients any more than uh, if they happened to be lab rats. Vetter used between 150 and 250 patients in his experiments, and a high percentage of those patients died. The purposes of the pharmac- pharmacological experiments were not in hopes of helping these patients, but to observe the reaction of the medicine on the patients, even when it was obvious the medicine was harming them or killing them. Let's look at one experiment in particular, the success of Periston on typhus used on 50 prisoners. The patients uh, started treatment. As soon as typhus was noticed, the patients were treated for five days, given two tablets three times a day. Well, the patients had bad reactions to these tablets. So then they were given the same dosage, now dissolved in a half a liter of water. This method caused heavy vomiting, which weakened the patients significantly. So next, the patients were given the same medicine, but now in the form of an enema. And not surprisingly, uh, the, this method caused violent and painful diarrhea up to 15 times a day. Patients did best with two tablets at a time, three times a day with lots of water. But still, even then, the medicine caused bitterness and burning on the tongue and palate and more. Uh, here are some uh, records of patient reactions. Two cases of swollen lips. 79% of patients vomited after taking the pill. 33% experienced sporadic diarrhea. 15 patients died due to the immediate effects of the medicine. Damn. Six died due to weakening of the heart. Six died due to toxic after effects. Two died because of brain complications. One died due to fever. The 35 surviving patients experienced a drop in temperature, but other symptoms of typhus remained. Three patients died due to rapid drop in temperature. In conclusion, although the medicine caused a drop in temperature and got rid of the fever, it did little to nothing in curing typhus. It was all for nothing. And that is how medical experiments often work, which is why they are not supposed to be conducted on unwilling human participants. Even more unethical, Vetter also experimented with typhus itself. Patients would be injected with the blood of a typhus-infected inmate, 
They'd be given the disease in the hopes of finding out how to vaccinate German soldiers from typhus. This experiment hoped to learn the incubation period of typhus, the course of the disease, and the effects of certain medicines on the disease. 19 people from Block 46 were infected with typhus. Patients were infected with typhus after it had been active for five days. Rashes appeared around the third day and cardiovascular collapse. Uh, Hypotension, hollow heart sounds and murmurs occurred on 11 of the 14 cases. Every person's spleen became inflamed and 10 died. Cardiovascular collapse, the most common uh, cause of death. Vetta was later convicted by an American military tribunal at the Mauthausen trial in 1947 and was executed for war crimes in February of 1949. Executed as a war criminal for doing research on behalf of Bayer. And not the only Bayer employee working uh, for the Nazis. Uh, Bayer was particularly active in Auschwitz. A senior Bayer official oversaw the chemical factory in Auschwitz III, also called Monowitz. The chemical factory was called IG Auschwitz, a 100% subsidiary of IG Farben the largest complex in the world manufacturing gasoline and rubber. IG Farman put the pieces of the deal in place between February and April 1941. The company bought the land from the treasury for a knockdown price after the land had been stolen from Polish owners, mainly Jewish people, without compensation. Their homes vacated and demolished. German authorities expelled the Jewish owners, confiscated the homes, sold them to IG Farman as housing for the company employees brought in from Germany. Some local Polish residents uh, dispossessed in the same way. Finally, IG, IG Farben officials reached an agreement with the concentration camp uh, commandant on hiring prisoners at a preferential rate of three to four marks per day for the labor of auxiliary and skilled construction workers. Workers, of course, would not see that money. Uh, in a letter to his colleagues about the negotiations, IB Farben director Otto Ambrose wrote that, quote, our new friendship with the SS is very fruitful. Oof. Uh, elsewhere, elsewhere in Auschwitz, bear experiments were conducted in uh, Birkenau in Block 20, the women's camp hospital. Their veteran, some Auschwitz physicians, tested bear pharmaceuticals on prisoners who suffered from and often had been deliberately infected with tuberculosis, diphtheria, and other diseases. In one study of an anesthetic, the company paid for use of 150 female inmates of Auschwitz. A bear employee wrote to Rudolf Haas, the Auschwitz commandant, the transport of 150 women arrived in good condition, right? Like they're fucking cattle. However, we were unable to obtain conclusive results because they died during the experiments. Yeah, as in all of them. Uh, we would kindly request that you send us another group of women to the same number and at the same price. Fuck. Just the way they write it. Uh, we, we kindly request. Would you please uh, send 150 more women over for us to torture and kill? Doesn't sound like they were reluctantly doing this. Sounds like they were eagerly conducting experiments on concentration camp victims to come up with new products they could later make a lot of money off of. Due to the Nazis destroying a lot of the records of what they did at these camps, who knows how many concentration camp victims Bear experimented on and killed in total. This feels evil. This feels pretty full evil. Uh, after the war, some employees of Bear appeared in the IG Farben trial, one of the Nuremberg subsequent tribunals under U.S. jurisdiction. The IG Farben trial, the sixth Nuremberg, Nuremberg trial to determine the extent of individuals' guilt in Nazi state actions, tried by Military Tribunal 6, which had been created by the U.S. military government for Germany in 1947. Uh, Thirteen defendants and Bayer employees were found guilty and were sentenced on uh, in, in July that year, receiving prison terms ranging from one and a half years to eight years, including time already served. Among them was Fritz Termier, who helped to plan the Monowitz camp and IG Farben's Buna Work factory at Auschwitz, where medical experimentation was conducted, uh, where 25,000 forced laborers were deployed. Fritz was sentenced to seven years, but released after only a couple for good behavior. I mean, yeah, sure. He helped kill a lot of Jewish people by performing medical experimentation on them, but also 
minded his manners in prison, right? Never got in trouble with the guards. So you got to let him out after a few years. He's barely evil now. On uh, the immediate post-war, the victorious allies divided the IG Farben conglomerate into individual companies and Bear now emerged or rather re-emerged as an independent enterprise. So World War II, definitely not a good look for Bear. I mean, they didn't just not stand up against the Nazis. They didn't uh, just help the German war effort, which they would have been essentially forced to do. They seemingly went out of their fucking way to experiment on Jewish concentration camp prisoners. Perhaps Hitler and his higher-ups also compelled them to do that, but I don't know. I keep thinking of that quote by that bear exec, IG Farben director Otto Ambrose. Our new friendship with the SS is very fruitful. Shit like this has gone a long way, and rightfully so, to help give Bear their evil designation. On November 1945, the Allied forces confiscated the IG and placed all its sites under the control of Allied officers. The company was to be dissolved, its assets made available for war reparations. The Allied military government had initially planned to break up IG Farben into as many small companies as possible. Yet the British permitted Ulrich Haberand, who'd been in charge of the Lower Rhine Consortium of Bears since 1943, to remain in his position. And soon they allowed production to resume as well, as the chemical industry's products were essential to supply the local population with various needed goods to keep post-war German society from completely fucking collapsing and creating an even bigger mess than the one they were already dealing with. Seeing that the small companies that they'd envisioned would survive in the world market or even in Germany itself, uh, the Allies created 12 new companies for the Federal Republic of Germany. One of those companies, right? Farben Fabriken by Bayer AG. Uh, newly established December 19th, 1951. Uh, the Leverkusen and three other sites allocated to the new company. And in 1952, Bayer also received the newly established Agfa Joint Stock Company for Photofabrication as a subsidiary. And this newly established Bayer would struggle. For the second time, just like in the First World War, it had lost its assets, including valuable patents. But they bounced back quick, quickly. In 1946, while still under Allied control, Bayer began to take unwanted pets, there were so many in post-war Germany, and turn them into nutrient-dense protein bars, precursors to the modern protein bars many gym aficionados enjoy today. Apparently, uh, from the uh, what I read, Golden Retriever Puppy and Tabby Cat Kittens tasted the best. Ground-up puppy and ground-up kitten meat. So tender, just melts in your mouth. Except not really in this case, because it had to be dried up and mushed into a protein bar. And of course, Bear did not do that. Not as evil as experimenting on concentration camp victims, actually, but I, uh, I bet I made more of you uh, more uncomfortable because of how highly emotional we meet sacks are when it comes to our pets. Sorry about that. I was just getting bored with all the business talk. 1-800-BUSINESS, and I needed something uh, horrific <laughs> to happen to stay interested. Okay, 1946. While still under Allied control, what Bear really did was reestablish sales uh, activities abroad. Then by the 1950s, the company was allowed to uh, acquire foreign affiliates, at first, the U.S. and Latin America were the focus of these activities. Then soon, the company also expanded into, uh, uh, you know, Europe outside of Germany. In 1957, Bayer joined with uh, Deutsche BP to successfully enter the petrochemical sector. 1967, Bayer's new site in Antwerp, Belgium, launched operations. By the mid-70s, Bayer had returned to economic domination, aiding in the German economic miracle, as it was called, and re-emerging as one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Bear also did little to come to terms with his Nazi past. Uh, Fritz Termier, right, the guy convicted of war crimes for his actions at Auschwitz, elected to Bear AG's supervisory board in 1956, a position he would retain until 1964, and that is not a good look. But he's a great chemist. So, you know, just uh, they just kind of overlooked his Nazi activities and made a lot of money off him. Kind of like what the American government did with so many Manhattan Project scientists. 
Uh, Bayer would make a lot of chemical advancements in the mid-20th century. They developed polyurethane chemistry, new crop protection products, new fibers and thermoplastics, new dye stuffs for synthetic fibers, and many other inventions, all contributing to the company's expansion. New products such as cardiovascular medicines, dermal antifungals, and broad-spectrum antibiotics emerged from Bayer's pharmaceutical laboratories. By 1963, Bayer once again employed nearly 80,000 people. Sales had grown to approximately 4.7 billion Deutschmarks. Further rapid growth necessitated the reorganization of the Bayer Group, which took effect in 1971. Bayer intensified R&D efforts in the 70s, steadily expanding its pharmaceutical and crop protection research activities. 1979, ground was broken for the Agricultural Center in Mannheim. The 18, uh, or excuse me, the 800 million Deutschmark project completed in 1988. The Pharmaceutical Research Center in West Haven, Connecticut, uh, dedicated in the same year. Successful products to emerge from Bayer's research laboratories in this period, including the cardiovascular drug Adalat in 1975, Bayer's first broad-spectrum antibiotic from the class of, ooh boy, Quinolounce, uh, Ciprobay in 1986, and the antifungal crop protection product Bailton or uh, Bailton in 1976. Uh, no big scandals with these. Adelat, it's a great high pressure, high, it's a great high blood pressure medication. And Ciprobay has cured many an STD, knocked, uh, gotten, gotten many a wean clean, gotten, gotten many a lady wean also clean, knocked bacterial pneumonia and, uh, who knows how many people out of their bodies, right? Cured a lot of pesky skin and dangerous bone infections. Not fair to only point out the bad shit they've done and not the good stuff. Uh, a major structural shift in sales also took place during this period. Bears, pharmaceuticals, crop protection, plastics, and coating raw material sales expanded considerably in the 70s. In regional terms, sales in North America and Asia uh, in the Pacific, South Pacific in particular, exploded. By 1987, 78% of the Bear Group's sales were made outside of Germany. 45% of its employees worked in foreign subsidiaries. 1988, Bear celebrated the 125th anniversary of its founding. Sales that year amounted to roughly 40 billion Deutschmark which is about $23.5 billion U.S. dollars uh, at that time, while the company employed more than 165,000 people worldwide. Additionally, Bayer AG became the first German company to list shares on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. And they also survived yet another controversy. Uh, let's talk about some really, really bad blood. Some medicines, for example, some of uh, those used to treat hemophilia are made from puppy blood. And you can't use painkillers with the puppies, so they have to feel everything. And they have such little blood to begin with, it doesn't make any sense not to drain them completely. And then where their dried out remains is a coonskin Davy Crockett style kind of cap of sorts. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a fucking monster. No, some medicine uh, used to treat hemophilia comes from hu- human blood. Hemophilia, why does saying things like that make me laugh? Hemophilia is usually uh, an inherited ble- uh, bleeding disorder in which the blood, I gotta stop thinking about fucking horrific stuff in which the blood does not clot properly. This can lead to spontaneous bleeding as well as uh, bleeding following injuries or surgery. And until the mid 20th century, having hemophilia generally meant you were not going to live very long. In the early 20th century, your life expectancy with hemophilia was uh, 13 years. If you had a bad wound or needed a surgery, you were probably going to die. You still couldn't get a blood transfusion since in the early 1900s, there was no way to store blood. People with hemophilia who needed a transfusion typically uh, received fresh whole blood from a, trying very hard not to say puppy here, family member, human family member, if they were lucky enough to get any. In 1937, Harvard physicians Arthur Patek and F.H.L. Taylor published a paper describing anti-hemophilia globulin found in plasma. It could decrease clotting time in patients with hemophilia. 
By the late 1950s and early 1960s, fresh frozen plasma was transfused in patients in the hospital. However, each bag of the plasma contained so little of the necessary clotting factor that huge volumes of it had to be administered. Many children experienced severe joint bleeds that were crippling. Intracranial hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging could be fatal and often was. Uh, by 1960, the life expectancy for a person with severe hemophilia was still less than 20 years old. But then modern pharmaceuticals began to provide more comprehensive treatment. In 1965, Dr. Judith Graham Poole, a researcher at Stanford University, published a paper on, oh shit, published a paper on cryoprecipitate. Cryoprecipitate. You get it. Uh, in a major breakthrough, she discovered that the precipitate left from thawing plasma was uh, rich in factor eight, one of the essential blood proteins. Uh, plays a role in aiding the blood to clot in response to injury. Because, fuck this word, that one I tried to say earlier, cryoprecipitate contained a substantial amount of this factor in a smaller volume that could be infused to control serious bleeding. Blood banks could produce and store the component, making emergency surgery and elective procedures for patients with hemophilia uh, much more manageable. Uh, today, uh, the best way to treat hemophilia in a non-emergency situation is to replace the missing blood clotting factor so that the blood can clot properly. This is done by infusing, administering through a vein, commercially prepared factor concentrates. People with hemophilia can learn how to perform these infusions themselves so that they can stop bleeding episodes and by performing the infusions on a regular basis can prevent most bleeding episodes. And all this is fucking great. This is good stuff, life-saving stuff. But here comes the bad part. In order to not have your body reject these infusions, you have to eat puppy eyeballs. I'm trying to stop, but the thoughts keep coming. Get out of here, devil. Go on. Why do you keep doing this to me? Where's that powerful button I need that I should have set up beforehand to get rid of you? Oh, no. I This isn't good. It's not even on this. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, this is getting really awkward. There we go. Little late. Little late. <laughs> Thought it was on a different button page. Hey, uh, no, the bad part is that uh, unsurprisingly, it can be pre pretty easy to pass on dangerous diseases through blood transfusions, which is why in the early 80s, at the start of the AIDS epidemic, the federal government in the U.S. banned the use of prisoners, intravenous drug users, and gay men as donors for these medications. Their blood was considered high risk at that time, and there was no screening test for AIDS at that time. Bayer ignored these laws and used high-risk blood pools. She said, fuck it all the dangerous risks and produce their factor eight and factor nine clotting products for hemophiliacs with blood that uh, just came from anywhere. Even worse, because they combined the blood of all donors to make their product over 10,000 people's blood got in a big old fucking blood pool batch. Even a tiny amount of donors with diseased blood were able to contaminate the entire pool. And that's what happened. And Bear knew they were being reckless. This was a bunch of random dudes mixing fucking leftovers together and hoping they'd be able to create a tasty meal, right? Stakes were a wee bit higher. Scientists were working on this. Doctors, people paid by Bayer to ignore the fact that pooling blood this way uh, at the time was super fucking reckless and ridiculous. That it meant the odds were good that the blood would have HIV and or AIDS in it. What was supposed to be a drug that could save lives ended up, you know, ending a lot of lives. And Bayer would continue distributing this infected medicine even after a test was developed to detect HIV in blood samples and eliminate the virus. It continued to sell millions of dollars worth of an older version of this medication, not in Germany, not in the U.S. or in other countries where the press would tear them apart if they found out what they were doing and litigation would be immense, but in Latin America and Asia where there were fewer laws protecting consumers while marketing a newer, safer product in the U.S. and Europe. They took a calculated financial risk that would inevitably lead to people unnecessarily dying 
all for money. In late 1984, as Hong Kong hemophiliacs began testing positive for HIV, some doctors wondered whether the Bayer subsidiary Cutter Biological was sending, knowingly, AIDS-tented medicine into less developed nations. A 1985 test by the CDC found that 74% of hemophiliac patients using Cutter's biological medication tested positive for HIV. And they knew that shit was tainted. In the end, somewhere around 20,000 hemophiliacs from around the globe would be unnecessarily infected with HIV as a result of using Bayer's Factor 8 and 9. Bayer has now paid out over $600 million in compensation for hemophiliacs who contracted the disease. And I'm sure they made more uh, than enough to cover the loss and still be wildly profitable. And their payout didn't bring any of those 20,000 people back to life. This is back in 1985 when getting infected with HIV was a fucking death sentence. HIV tended to turn AIDS, uh, turn into AIDS in eight to 10 years. And it wouldn't be until 1995, right? Nearly 15 years after AIDS was uh, initially reported, the doctors began successfully treating AIDS with a combination of drugs. In their defense, Bayer said it continued selling the older version because some customers doubted the new one's effectiveness. It's a fucking dumb reason. And because some countries were slow to approve its sale. Those are not good reasons. They said Bayer has always behaved responsibly, ethically, and humanely to provide life-saving products for the global hemophilia community. Fuck off. 74%, 74% of the patients who claimed it was treating ethically and humanely were being infected with HIV from their medicine. And I have to imagine over 90% of those who got infected would go on to die from AIDS. And despite the public statements, internal documents revealed that Bayer, they for sure knew what they were doing was wrong. In 1985, a company task force even asked can we in good faith continue to ship non-heat-treated coagulation products to Japan? And the answer was dollar-dollar bills, y'all. Sure can. Sure can if the money's right. Uh, 74% uh, of the recipients contracting HIV was apparently viewed as an acceptable loss. This would not be their only HIV-related controversy. Nelson Mandela signed the Medicines Control Act in 1997, which allowed South Africa's health minister to override patent protections to use generic AIDS drugs if there was a need. Bayer was one of several large pharmaceutical companies that filed a joint suit in 1998 against the South African government for patent infringement in a gross attempt to deprive victims of AIDS of desperately needed cheaper medication. How fucked up. They could have let this nation, you know, uh, just continue to make generic versions of their life-saving drug, even help them. Good chance for the, them to do something to make up for what they did to all those hemophiliacs. But instead, once again, they put profit before lives. After three years of an international outrage, the case was withdrawn and the government made their generic medicine. How many people died because it wasn't available for the poor during those three years? Bayer also got back into the human experimentation game in the 1980s, though this time they would not experiment on unwilling participants like they had with the Nazis. But these participants might have been unwilling had they known about the drug's effects. Bayer being Bayer, apparently, they placed hundreds of patients at risk of potentially fatal infections by failing to disclose crucial safety information to six hospitals at the start of a UK drug trial. Bayer's own research as early as 1989 showed that the antibiotic uh, ciprofloxacin sold as ciproxin reacted badly with various opiate-based sedatives or pre-meds commonly given to patients ahead of surgery. Research showed that the drug was not properly absorbed by many patients, impairing its ability to kill bacteria, placing the patient at risk of sometimes fatal infections. This known information was not relayed to hospitals before the trials, before up to 650 people underwent surgery, violating their human rights. The trials resulted in nearly half the people at one test center in Southampton developing potentially life-threatening infections. At least one patient died. Another developed an infection so severe, uh, relatives were initially told they would not survive. 
Nearly half the patients at Southampton Hospital's Trust developed post-operative wound infections requiring emergency therapy. Infection and mortality rates of the five other trial sites never revealed on the grounds of confidentiality. So I have to think other people died as well. Also unnecessary. Uh, Bear later, after being legally pressured, confirmed that it did know of absorption problems with the drug before the study began. However, they still used the dangerous drug for two years and are still keeping trial records secret and have managed to avoid paying compensation to the relatives of patients injured or killed in the course of unapproved trials. Uh, Meanwhile, saproxen has been found to also lead to tendon disorders or ruptures. The FDA stated uh, that the agency will update the labeling package insert for all marketed fluoronquinolones. These fucking words. Fluoronquinolones. (laughs) It's about 70 letters long to include a warning about the possibility of tendon rupture. In 2008, the FDA announced black box warnings of tendon rupture among those given the antibiotics. In 2013, added risk of irreversible nerve damage. In the year since, some FDA approved, oh boy, fluoronquinolones <laughs> were swiftly withdrawn from the market after severe adverse reactions and several deaths. Who comes up with these fucking names, by the way? Right? Can we move away from Latin at this point? Do we still have to use that in medicine? Can we just call it like uh, Jimmy Four? Uh, try this uh, Marty 17 and see how that treats you. Uh, but no, they have names like Tro. Trophovloxacin, uh, which was withdrawn in 1999 because it damaged livers. Uh, others became, uh, but others became the drug of choice, both for serious infections and for tort- and for routine complaints. And that has led to a lot of suffering. From the 1980s to the end of 2015, the FDA received reports from more than 60,000 patients detailing hundreds of thousands of serious adverse events associated with five different fluoroquinolones. Florinquinolones are uh, still on the market, most commonly tendon rupture, as well as neurological and psychiatric symptoms, including 6,575 reports of deaths. Uh, however, how many people's lives have been saved by some of these? Also highly effective antibiotics. Those stats not been listed in any easy to find place. And that's a bummer because that would be very helpful in determining the morality of continuing to market and use this medicine. For example, if over, if over 6,500 6, people died because of this drug, but... Over 60 million people were saved by the drug and no other less harmful drug could have been used to save them. Then instead of uh, uh, being evil for Bayer to market this drug, it would be a a miracle of a drug of sorts and an awesome drug to market. And were these drugs more or less dangerous than their counterparts, right? Some of the the easy to find examples of Bayer's evil don't actually read as evil at all to me. They read as unfortunate, Uh, like this next example. 2002, after a nine-month investigation, a Peruvian congressional subcommittee found significant evidence of criminal responsibility by both the agrochemical company Bayer and the Peruvian Ministry of Agriculture in the poisoning of 42 children in the remote Andean village of Takamarca in October of 1999. The children were stricken after eating a school breakfast contaminated with the organophosphate pesticide methylperithion. Uh, the children died in a gruesome death, many of them in the arms of parents uh, as they were carried down the mountain to the nearest health center. 24 kids died before they could reach medical treatment. 18 others survived with significant long-term health and developmental consequences. And that's fucking horrible. I mean, how could Bear do this? Well, they, they didn't actually do this. A police investigation found that a village woman mixed pesticide powder into a bag of milk substitute and then served it as part of school lunch. Uh, the woman had hoped to poison a dog who was chasing her chickens. And she had no idea that the pesticide was that toxic. Fucking what? 
How did she not know that? Uh, the pesticide was heavily marketed under the name of Falodol to small farmers throughout Peru, the great majority of whom speak Quechua only and are illiterate. Bear packaged the pesticide, a white powder that resembles powdered milk and has no strong chemical odor in a small plastic bag labeled in Spanish and displaying a picture of vegetables. The labels provided no usable safety information, such as pictograms for the majority of users in remote villages who were illiterate and thus couldn't assess the danger of the product. But this, this bothers me because how is it Bear's fault that people in this area are illiterate? I mean, it's sad to me, but whose fault is it? I would think the government they're way more responsible for a lack of education than bear. Uh, this is like me being sued because someone dies of a heart attack because they're very attached to puppies and they get really fucking worked up about my puppies earlier. And now I'm responsible because I didn't put up a warning at the top of the show. Remain calm. Sometimes I will joke around and say outrageous things, probably about puppies that are not actually true. Don't get yourself too worked up. I mean, is it sad that this happened in this proving village? Yeah, it's the fucking saddest. But should Bayer have to put pictures on products in order to not be sued? I mean, going forward in this example, yes, in this region, but should companies have to make sure that the people buying their products know how to fucking read before selling products to them? I don't know. It seems like a weird slippery slope. Now, here's more info, more info on what happened. And of course, it is super sad. A child walked by, picked up the familiar bag, took it to school where it was mixed with other bags, and then eaten with school lunch. They didn't have a fucking good bag storage situation apparently in this uh this village uh the families filed a suit against bear in october of 20, 2001 bear was found responsible in the deaths the settlement amount appears to not have been publicly disclosed i don't know i, I guess i just think if, if you it is a choice to learn the official language of your nation or not and to learn how to read or not at a certain level and uh sad i know there's a lot of economic you know factors socioeconomic things that feed into this but uh, if you can't read warning labels and you end up fucking putting a pesticide into your milk, uh, you know, fucking formula. I mean, whose fault is that really? I mean, it's not like the pic- the bag had a picture of milk on it. Uh, yeah, this seems like a bad, again, slippery slope leading further away from personal responsibility to me. Uh, subsequent controversies in the late 2000s for Bear would have to do with his birth control products. In 2009, uh, Felicitas, Felicitas, Rohrer, who was 25 at the time, suddenly collapsed and her heart stopped beating for 25 or 20 minutes. In emergency open-heart surgery, doctors found huge blood clots blocking the main artery to her lung. She didn't have any pre-existing conditions, didn't have a blood disorder, didn't smoke, exercised frequently, so what happened? After finding no alternative explanation, doctors pointed the finger at Bear's birth control pill, Yasminel, which Roar had been taken for eight months when she collapsed. According to several studies, birth control pills containing draw speed run route. Jesus Christ, he's fucking word. Draw, sp- and, I, and I put pronunciation Examples like phonetic spellings. But when you're looking at these words, if you haven't gone to medical school, it's like, when am I ever going to fucking say this again? Uh, containing draw speed renown, such as bears, Yasminel, were found to increase the risk of an embolism or thrombosis by up to three times compared to previous generations of contraceptive pills. However, pills like these are still being sold by numerous companies around the world because they work really, really well. Over 99% effective. And most medicine does carry a small risk of dangerous side effects. Right. Very recently, Bayer announced in July 2018 that it would discontinue sales of Assure birth control implants, another birth control device, by the end of the year, bowing to a lengthy campaign by health advocates and thousands of women to get the device off the market. This implants had a troubled history. It's been the subject of an estimated 16,000 lawsuits or claims filed by women who reported severe injuries, including perforation of the uterus and the fallopian tubes. Several deaths, including of a few infants, have also been attributed to the device or to complications from it. 
Bear said its decision to halt sales of the device not related to the litigation or safety issues, but to a decline in use as women have other options now. Bear has repeatedly denied the implant is dangerous or caused injuries. The Assure implant uh, consists of two small coils made of a nickel alloy and a polyester-like fiber placed through the vagina into the fallopian tubes designed to create an inflammatory response that causes scar tissue to form blocking the tubes. The U.S., uh, this sounds crazy. Uh, the U.S. was the only country where the device considered a non-surgical sterilization implant was still being sold as of 2018. Bayer had already stopped selling it in England, Brazil, Canada, France, and elsewhere. Uh, 2016, the FDA ordered placement of a black box warning that warned of injury risk, including that the implant could travel into the abdomen and pelvic cavity, possibly requiring surgical removal. However, uh, a lot of, again, a lot of women have uh, stated that they, uh, this device has worked out very well for them. Okay, let's look at one more bear controversy, then a shady ongoing business practice before moving on to Monsanto, which will be a smaller portion of the show. Uh, federal law requires that Medicaid be charged the lowest possible price available for medications. And if a company offers to sell a drug to a private insurance company or pharmacy at an even lower price, they got to issue a rebate to Medicaid. In brokering a deal with Kaiser Permanente in 1995, Bayer broke the law by agreeing to sell Kaiser the antibiotic Cipro for less than they charged Medicaid after Kaiser threatened to start using Johnson & Johnson's cheaper Floxin instead. Rather than follow the law, notify Medicaid about the price change, which required them to issue tens of millions of dollars in rebates. Bayer then followed Kaiser's suggestion to relabel the drugs with Kaiser's name and a different drug identification number. And then a year later, they started doing the same thing with their blood pressure medication, Adelat CC. And then they got caught. In 2003, Bayer reached a settlement with the government, still claiming their business dealings with Kaiser were responsible and conducted in good faith. Come on! You fuckers tried to sneak something by the uh, the law and you got caught. At least own up to it. Despite their claims that they acted responsibly, they agreed to plead guilty and pay uh, $257 million. $5.6 million for the overcharges and $251.6 million in civil penalties. And what was the largest Medicaid fraud settlement in history at that time? Not good, but evil... I don't think so. Big corporations are constantly trying to circumvent finance laws, just like individuals are constantly trying to push the envelope when it comes to uh, tax write-offs or tax loopholes. Evil or human nature with that one? Maybe the scariest known thing uh, uh, Bear consistently has done is to uh, try to su- suppress scientific information, and they have done that successfully sometimes. Bear reportedly asked bacteriologists and scientists who want to test Bear products for antibiotic research to sign a document stating they will inform Bear AG in writing of test results and will not publish or commercialize them without written permission of Bayer. This brings up many issues of drug companies suppressing scientific information that does not suit their commercial purposes. Bayer also throws around a lot of money to get what they want. Bayer donates over $500,000 a year to the American Heart Association, which may explain why the AHA has endorsed only Bayer aspirin, right? Should they be allowed to donate like that to an agency that then endorses them? A little bit of a conflict of interest there. Uh, Bear also contributes over $500,000 a year to the American Diabetes Association, is a sustaining member of the American Medical Writers Association, and contributes to the American Veterinary Association, Arthritis Foundation, Biotechnology Institute, Environmental Sensitivities Research Institute, and on and on and on. In addition, Bear donates a lot of money to political parties. Uh, they admit to supporting the further education of doctors in Portugal by paying for them to go on trips around the world, maybe in an attempt to influence their prescription writing. The head of the Portuguese State Medical Board, Carlos Ribeira, uh, one of many who has strong concerns about Bear's motives. Bear also uh, diminishes critical coverage of their actions. Bear once forced a watchdog group, coordination against Bear dangers, formerly known as Bear Watch, clever, see what he did there, uh, to withdraw their domain name and trademark group name by threatening them with a heavy court cost or threatening them with a heavy court cost. 
Actions later deemed illegal. Bullying by a German court. Okay, so there you go. So I've laid out all the evidence, so to speak, that people point to when trying to prove that Bear is evil. I'll share more thoughts on what I think about their evil uh, or not evil nature after you go through the second chunk of evidence that Bear is the fucking worst. Uh, it's association with Monsanto. But first, uh, seems like a solid, uh, you know, uh, spot to uh, to have some ads. Today's time suck is brought to you by uh, Bear Pharmaceuticals, spelled B-E-A-R, not to be confused with those German fuckers. Bear Pharmaceuticals, the only corporation in the world with the balls to admit that we're full-on fucking evil, bitches. We don't give a fuck about you. We don't create life-saving medicine to save lives. We do it to make more money than your poor dumbass will ever see. Go ahead, get mad. What are you really going to do? Not take the best medicine on the market to save your pathetic fucking life? That's what I thought, you sniveling dipshit. We have the best drugs, anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, even cancer tumor eliminating miracle shit. And it costs way more than we need to charge for it. Can't afford it? Who cares? Go die in a fucking ditch. If you live in a first world country, you get top shelf quality shit. But if your impoverished ass lives in a third world country, fuck off. You're gonna get the shit that's illegal to sell anywhere else because it's fucking dangerous. Contaminated batches, medicinal rough drafts that might cure what ails you, also might give your baby a second head. Good, more eyes for that dumb ugly baby to cry with. Bear Pharmaceuticals, we own the patents. We have the power to save millions of lives and we will abuse that power. If you want to complain or protest, don't give us a call because we will not answer. We'll probably be on my mega yacht running a fucking train on your wife, daughter, and your mom. Bear, we're only in this for the money. Hmm. Wow, what a, what a, uh, what a great new sponsor. I gotta say, I, I love the honesty, uh, the transparency. It's uh, very refreshing. I hope they buy more ads in the future. Now for some more ads. The quote-unquote real sponsors, like the Suckverse, isn't a real place. Uh, really uh, hope that we don't happen to be sponsored by Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R right now. Uh, I don't know. Some of, uh, uh, I didn't know, some what I know prior to this recording. And we have to go over so many potential sponsors and accept to decline them every week. And honestly, I have no fucking idea where we're at with Bayer. So that's awkward. Here we go. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Hope you heard some great ads from sponsors not connected to Nazi human experimentation. Back to this week's story. Uh, Bear, B-A-Y-E-R, 
has, of course, come under fire for its connection with Monsanto. Uh, Bear bought Monsanto in 2018 for about six bucks. No, yeah, right. No, they paid a uh, cool $63 billion. Monsanto was a leading producer of chemical agricultural and biochemical products from its founding in 1901 until it became a division of Bayer and no longer operates under its own name. Now we got to look into their history. They have been consistently awesome. They have sold mostly unicorns to fart rainbows to rich kids to raise a little bit of money for themselves and a lot of money for sick orphans. No, the Monsanto Chemical Works uh, was founded in 1901 by John F. Queenie, a purchasing agent for a wholesale drug company to manufacture the synthetic sweetener saccharin, then produced only in Germany. Uh, Queenie was a tough cigar-smoking Irishman with a sixth-grade education and a business idea that would turn out to be far more profitable than he could have ever imagined. Queenie invested $1,500 of his own money, borrowed another $3,500 from a local Epsom salts manufacturer to launch a new company, which he named Monsanto after his wife's maiden name. So pretty adorable beginning, actually. Uh, the firm carried out full-scale saccharin production beginning the following year in 1902, added caffeine and vanillin uh, uh, to his product line over the next few years. And in 1905, four uh, years after forming, they began turning a profit. The German cartel that controlled the market for saccharin was not pleased. And they cut their price from $4.50 to $1 a pound to try to force Queenie out of business. Uh, the young company faced other challenges as well. Uh, questions arose about the safety of saccharin and the U.S. Department of Agriculture even tried to ban it. Harvey Wiley, the chief chemist for the USDA, was charged with investigating dangerous foods and looked into the safety of saccharin starting in 1908. Didn't think it was good. Wiley told President Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt, everyone who ate that sweet corn was deceived. He thought he was eating sugar when in point of fact, he was eating a coal tar product totally devoid of food value and extremely injurious uh, to health. But Roosevelt himself loved saccharin and in a heated exchange, uh, angrily answered Wiley by stating anybody who says saccharin is injurious or injurious to health is an idiot. And that episode actually uh, proved to be the undoing of Wiley's career, which is unfortunate because Wiley was not an idiot. That shit uh, very likely is not good for you. Uh, yeah, saccharin was discovered by a dude who worked on coal tar derivatives. He noticed a sweet taste on his hand one night after fucking around with some coal tar. And that led to discovering saccharin, a zero-calorie sugar substitute commonly sold to Sweet and Low that has repeatedly and consistently led to cancer in uh, male rats, but not consistently led to cancer in human studies. However, a lot of people wonder if that's because big corporations like Monsanto have buried the results of studies that do link saccharin to cancer. Just speculation. Uh, with the Coca-Cola company as one of Monsanto's chief customers, right? Sales reached a uh, million dollars in 1915. Getting that saccharin into that soda. Uh, Monsanto also then began producing aspirin in 1917, ironically, considering their later acquisition, uh, benefiting from Bayer losing its U.S. aspirin patent in World War I. After Queenie was diagnosed with cancer in the late 1920s, also ironic, ironic perhaps, his only son, Edgar, became president. Where the father had been a classic entrepreneur, Edgar Monsanto Queenie was a fucking empire builder with a grand vision. Uh, Edgar Sr. had established a company, but Edgar Jr. would make it an international powerhouse. Under Edgar Queenie and his successors, Monsanto extended its reach, similar to what Bayer had also done, through research and development, into a phenomenal number of products, right? Plastics, resins, rubber goods, fuel additives, uh, polyurethane pet dildos, no, uh, artificial caffeine, industrial fluids, vinyl siding, dishwasher detergent, antifreeze, popsicles, nope, fertilizers, yep, herbicides, pesticides, fucking rubber duckies, maybe, I don't know, uh, produced styrene, a component of synthetic rubber, which was vital to the U.S. war effort in World War II. And all that was fine. But later... There was a dark side to their expansion, just like there had been with Bayer. In 1948, Monsanto began to make a new chemical in its plant in Nitro, West Virginia, 
called weed bug by the workers at that time. Uh, a byproduct of the process was the creation of a chemical that would later be known as dioxin. The name dioxin now refers to a group of highly toxic chemicals that have been linked to heart disease, liver disease, human reproductive disorders, and a number of developmental problems. Even in small amounts, dioxin persists in the environment and accumulates in the body. In 1997, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, a branch of the World Health Organization, classified the most powerful form of dioxin as a substance that causes cancer in humans. In 2001, the U.S. government listed the chemical as a known human carcinogen. And back on March 8th, 1949, a massive explosion rocked Monsanto's nitro plant when a pressure valve blew on a container cooking up a batch of herbicide. The noise from the release uh, screamed so loud and of such a duration, it apparently drowned out the emergency steam whistle for five minutes. And a plume of vapor and white smoke drifted across the plant and then out over the town. Residue from the explosion coated the interior of the building and those inside with what workers described as a fine black powder. Many felt their skin prickle, were told to immediately scrub down. Within days, workers experienced skin eruptions. Many were soon diagnosed with uh, chloracne, a condition similar to common acne, but more severe, longer lasting, uh, potentially disfiguring. Others felt intense pains in their legs, chest, uh, uh, you know, rest other parts of their body. A confidential medical report at the time said the explosion caused a systemic intoxication in the workers involving most major organ systems. And doctors who examined four of the most seriously injured men detected a strong odor coming from them when they were all together in a closed room. We believe these men are excreting a foreign chemical through their skins, the confidential report to Monsanto noted. Court records indicated that 226 plant workers became ill. And you know what? Uh, accidents happen. However, how Monsanto responded to this accident was not cool. Monsanto significantly downplayed the impact, stating that the contaminant affecting workers was fairly slow acting and caused only an irritation to the skin. Uh, listen, everyone, uh, did one of our chemical plants explode and send some kind of, uh, you know, not the best toxin into the air? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, a little bit. But hey, don't freak out. Uh, do you send toxins in the air when you sneeze? Yeah, sure do. So just think of our plant explosion as a big old sneezeroo. And some people got a little snot on them. And no one likes to get someone snot on them, but that's life. And you can cry about it, or you can take a shower, clean off the snot, and get back to fucking work. Uh, after the explosion, the nitro plant was repaired and continued to produce herbicides, rubber products, other chemicals. In the 1960s, the factory manufactured Agent Orange, the powerful herbicide which the U.S. military used to defoliate jungles during the Vietnam War and which later was the focus of many a lawsuit, uh, you know, especially by veterans contending that they had been harmed by exposure. Listen, everyone, is Agent Orange technically kind of bad for you? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're not going to feel great if you, say, drink a lot of Agent Orange. But you're also not going to feel great if you drink a lot of Orange Fanta, okay? Think of Agent Orange as a soda. A little is fine, but too much is going to melt your fucking face off. You get it? Uh, but maybe it's a little worse than that. Recently, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam reported that some 400,000 people have suffered death or permanent injury from exposure to Agent Orange and uh, yeah, estimated that 2 million people have suffered from illnesses caused by exposure and that half a million babies born with birth defects due to the effects of Agent Orange. Also, according to the group, the Vietnam Veterans of America, roughly 300,000 veterans have died from Agent Orange exposure, almost five times as many as the 58,000 who died in combat. Perhaps due to 11 million gallons of Agent Orange being sprayed in Vietnam over 20 million acres, hundreds of thousands of veterans have had children born sterile or born with various birth defects. But to be fair, do you have any fucking idea how many people get tummy aches from too much Orange Fanta? Or how many people are moved closer to diabetes due to too much Orange Fanta? Or, still not done, how many cavities can be traced directly to Orange Fanta? 
right? So which is worse? Uh, no, uh, Agent Orange is, is, is horrific. And Monsanto paid out hundreds of millions of dollars over the years, has so far in numerous lawsuits for poisoning people with it. And here is what might be evidence that Monsanto is super duper evil. Documents later leaked that proof scientists knew that Agent Orange was uh, a carcinogen, would cause cancer. However, and this is such a big however that really changes the narrative uh, regarding Monsanto and Agent Orange that is sadly rarely showing up in poorly written clickbait articles. The U.S. government, through the Department of Defense, compelled Monsanto and eight other wartime government contractors, including Dow Chemical, to manufacture Agent Orange to their exact specifications. So they should have told people about the cancerous uh, you know, effects of Agent Orange. Didn't ask them, told them that they legally had to do this. Thanks to the Defense Production Act of 1950, an act still around, by the way, in amended form, that allows the U.S. government to essentially take over companies during times of war and force them to, quote, accept and prioritize contracts for materials deemed necessary for national defense, regardless of a loss incurred on business. And if you don't comply, they will slap felonies on you. So how about that shit? Why doesn't that show up in more articles? Because it doesn't satisfy the outrage porn narrative, that's why. Or, or should I say it doesn't satisfy the anti-Monsanto outrage porn narrative. I personally think it does feed the how scary are some of our laws here narrative. Uh, I mean, this act allows the free government of the U.S. to go full fucking fascist and force businesses to do whatever bidding it deems necessary, even if it's unethical. I do understand the logic, but pretty scary. One of the many reasons I'm in favor of a much smaller government than the one we have. Uh, Okay, so was Monsanto really responsible for all the Agent Orange horrors? Or was it Uncle Sam? Sure sounds like uh, the government is more to blame to me. Just like with Monsanto's older herbicides, the manufacturing of Agent Orange created dioxin as a byproduct. As for the nitro plant's dioxin waste, some was burned in incinerators, some dumped in landfills or storm drains, some allowed to run into streams. Several former nitro employees filed lawsuits in federal court charging that Monsanto had knowingly exposed them to chemicals that caused long-term health problems, including cancer, excuse me, and heart disease. They alleged that Monsanto knew that many chemicals used at nitro were potentially harmful, but kept that information from them. Before going to trial in 1988, Monsanto agreed to settle most of the cases by making a single lump payment of $1.5 million. Monsanto also agreed to drop its claim to collect $305,000 in court costs from six retired Monsanto workers who had unsuccessfully charged in another lawsuit that Monsanto had recklessly exposed them to dioxin, which they did. Uh, Monsanto had attached liens to the retirees' homes, though, to guarantee collection of that debt. Monsanto stopped producing dioxin and nitro in 1969, but the toxic chemical can still be found around the, the plant site and uh, the area surrounding the plant site. Repeated studies have found elevated levels of dioxin in nearby rivers, streams, and fish. Meanwhile, 500 miles to the south in Anniston, Alabama, a Monsanto, produced PCP, or a Monsanto plant produced PCPs as industrial coolants and insulating fluids for transformers and other electrical equipment for over four decades from 1929 to 1971. And in February 2003, residents of Aniston won a $300 million settlement for Monsanto in a now-famous court case where they argued the multinational corporation responsible for polluting the town and harming its citizens. I do, I do find it uh, frustrating. You can't find any specific info online regarding whether or not rates for cancer and other diseases or birth defects attributed to the PCBs were much higher in this location than other locations in the nation. Without, a, without that info, impossible to know, you know how much the town was truly harmed by the pollution. They were harmed, not doubting that. Just wish uh, more details were public. One of the wonder chemicals of the 20th century, PCBs, extremely uh, versatile, fire resistant, and uh, central to many American industries as lubricants, hydraulic fluids, and sealants. And also, they're toxic. 
Uh, a member of a family of chemicals that mimic hormones, PCBs have been linked to damage in the liver and in the neurological, immune, endocrine, and reproductive systems. The EPA and the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry, part of the Department of Health and Human Services, classifies PCBs as probable carcinogens. At the Monsanto plant, excess PCBs were dumped in a nearby open pit landfill or allowed to flow off the property with stormwater. Some waste poured directly into Snow Creek, which runs alongside the plant, empties into a larger stream, uh, Chakalaka Creek. Now, apparently, that is how it's pronounced. Um, today, though, people fish the hell out of Chakalaka Creek, catching, eating spotted bass, largemouth bass, blue, uh, blue catfish, and more. Eat those fish, seem to be doing just fine. Uh, PCBs also turned up in private lawns after the company invited Aniston residents to use soil from the plant for their lawns, according to the Aniston Star. For decades, the people of Aniston breathed air, planted gardens, drank from wells, fished in rivers, swam in creeks, contaminated with PCBs without knowing about the danger. Wouldn't be until the 1990s, 20 years after Monsanto stopped making PCBs in Aniston, the widespread public awareness of the problem took hold. Monsanto agreed to clean up the town, but PCB can remain in human systems for a lifetime, so too late for people exposed to dangerous levels. You know, they shut down production in 1971 uh, and then did uh, all PCB operations in America in 1977. Did Monsanto know how toxic these chemicals were? We'll never know for certain. In the 70s, Monsanto turned towards a new emerging field, not how chemical components can be altered or changed, but how to engineer biological components like DNA structures, biotechnology. 1981, Monsanto created a molecular biology group for research in plant genetics. This would become very profitable for them. Uh, The next year, Monsanto scientists hit gold, became the first company to genetically modify a plant cell. The company said uh, it will now be possible to introduce virtually any gene into plant cells with the ultimate goal of improving crop productivity. Backing up, why would a company company want to modify plant cells? Well, crops that have been modified at the cellular level are called genetically modified organisms or GMOs. And here we go. Welcome to the new world order. Uh, Modifying plants, animals is not technically all that new. For thousands of years, humans have, uh, you know, used breeding methods to modify organisms. Corn, cattle, even dogs have been selectively bred over generations to have certain desired traits. Right within the last few decades, <laughs> we're trying really hard not to talk about polyurethane pet dildos after talking about dogs again. Uh, within the last few decades, however, modern advances in biotechnology have allowed scientists to directly modify the DNA of microorganisms, crops, and animals, and genetically modified plants could be resistant to certain kinds of diseases that can kill off a whole season of crops and plunge an area into famine. It's very valuable. Genetically engineered crops produce higher yields, have a longer shelf life, uh, more resistant to diseases and pests, even taste better. Uh, These benefits are a plus for both farmers and consumers. For example, higher yields, longer shelf life may lead to lower prices for consumers. uh, And pest-resistant crops mean that the farmers don't need to buy and use as many pesticides to grow quality crops. Companies like Monsanto say that GMOs, their products, the key to alleviating third-world starvation, concerns about overpopulation, and many other issues that face humankind. And maybe they are. I'm not going to claim to be a scientist who can truly understand how dangerous or not they are. So far, it does seem that study after study after study has has, uh, shown that GMOs are not hazardous to human health. But GMOs are controversial nonetheless. Uh, Genetic engineering typically changes an organism in a way that would not occur naturally. Even common for scientists to insert genes into an organism from an entirely different organism. And this could raise the risk of, say, unexpected allergic reactions to some GMO foods, Other concerns include the possibility of genetically uh, engineered foreign DNA spreading to non-GMO plants and animals. But so far, none of the GMOs approved for consumption have caused these problems. And GMO food sources are subject to regulations and rigorous safety assessments. Back in the 80s and 90s, Monsanto faced a lot of scrutiny and criticism 
for selling seeds of genetically modified plants, mostly by people who are worried that there would be unintended health consequences to eating GMOs. Most of that criticism would die out. However, uh, though we'll talk in a bit about how GMOs in Monsanto continued to be controversial in a very different way. Not only did they develop new uh, pesticide-resistant seeds, but Monsanto also worked to develop hormones that would make animals produce more. In the early 1980s, Monsanto, along with three other chemical pharmaceutical companies, began researching a new technology they believed would revolutionize the dairy industry. Through genetic engineering, researchers created re- oh my gosh, recombinant, there we go, recombinant bovine growth hormones to increase, I'm pr- proud of myself for that one, to increase milk production in dairy cows by 10 to 25%. The FDA approved Monsanto's RBGH product, uh, Posilac, for commercial use, or they approved Posilac for commercial use November 5th, 1993. Most studies say this product causes zero negative effects in humans. Some studies say it might be harmful. Overall, a lot of the studies are controversial in and of themselves with many different sides, all with their own motives, claiming to interpret the same data very differently. The FDA would approve RBGH without any long-term studies, which raised a lot of eyebrows, and that would skyrocket Monsanto's profits. Is that necessarily nefarious? Some think so. And they, and they point to a revolving door between Monsanto's higher-up positions and those at the FDA as proof. Michael R. Taylor, for example, was a staff attorney and executive assistant to the FDA commissioner before joining a law firm in Washington in 1981, where he worked to secure FDA approval of Monsanto's artificial growth hormone, before returning to the FDA as deputy commissioner in 1991. Dr. Michael A. Friedman, formerly the FDA's deputy commissioner for operations, joined Monsanto in 1999 as a senior vice president. Linda J. Fisher, Assistant Administrator at the EPA, when she left the agency in 1993, became a Vice President at Monsanto from 1995 to 2000, and then returned to the APA, EPA as a Deputy Administrator the next year. William D. Uh, Ruckelshaus, former EPA Administrator, and Mickey Cantor, former U.S. Trade Representative, each served on Monsanto's board after leaving the government. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was an attorney in Monsanto's corporate law department in the 1970s and then would later write the Supreme Court opinion in a crucial GM seed patent rights case in 2001 that benefited Monsanto and all GM seed companies. Now, this all looks bad, but devil's advocate. In the military, for example, people go from serving in the private sector, right? Uh, you know, and then uh, into the politics, uh, sometimes back on the government side. Uh, could that also be bad? Yeah, definitely. Uh, is it always bad? No. People could have went back and forth between Monsanto and the FDA or the EPA because one side just offered them a better job, more money, better benefits. And then the other side did. And then the other side did again, you know, that kind of thing. People do work in different areas of the same field all the time. I know that's not uh, an exciting, what the fuck is going on here? We're going to get these motherfuckers and tear it all down kind of point of view. But I think it's important to try and look at all this as logically and unemotionally as possible. Could be shady. For sure could be shady. Not necessarily shady. Uh, back to the story of RGBH. With more cheaper milk uh, on offer by larger dairies, smaller local dairies, quickly found it hard to keep up, and many went out of business. Shitty for small businesses, of course, but evil. Any more evil than Walmart and Target and other big box stores or online retailers like Amazon putting smaller businesses out of the market. Then in the 2000s, Monsanto would go after dairies that advertised that they didn't use RBGH, saying that that type of advertising adversely affected Monsanto's profits. Even if the advertising itself didn't say anything about whether or not RBGH was good, just that the particular dairy didn't use it. One of these dairies was Klein Peter in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. At the suggestion of a marketing consultant, the dairy began advertising its milk as coming from RBGH free cows in 2005, and the label began appearing on Klein Peter milk cartons and in company literature, including a new website of Klein Peter products 
that proclaimed, we treat our cows with love, not with RBGH. And the dairy sales then soared. For Kleinpeter, it's simply a matter of giving consumers uh, more information about the product and maybe throwing some shade on Monsanto. And Monsanto got mad. In a letter to the Federal Trade Commission on February 2007, Monsanto said that notwithstanding the overwhelming evidence that there is no difference in the milk from cow's treat with its product, milk processors persist in claiming on their labels and in advertisements that the use of RBST is somehow harmful, either to cows or to the people who consume milk from RBST supplemented cows. Monsanto called the commission to investigate what it called the deceptive advertising and labeling practices of milk processors such as Kleinpeter, accusing them of misleading customers by falsely claiming that there are health and safety risks associated with milk from these RBST supplemented cows. But Kleinpeter didn't explicitly make any of those claims. It just said they didn't use the growth hormone. But isn't an insinuation clear, right? Our milk is made naturally, not in a big chemical hormone, early puberty inducing cancer lab kind of way. You might not like this, but I think Monsanto had reason here to be a little pissed off about the label. I'm glad they weren't able to force anyone to not be able to state that their milk was RBGH free, but I do understand their frustration. I mean, imagine if you were in the coffee business and you figured out a way to grow coffee beans twice the size of regular beans on the same amount of water that were just as easy to pick and not harmful. And this discovery allowed you to cut your price per pound of ground beans down substantially, make more profit at a lower price, and you started making a killing out there in the coffee world. And then someone else, someone mad, and honestly, probably a little bit jealous that they didn't think of it first and can't compete, they start marketing their coffee in ways like, we grow our coffee naturally, right? Some insinuation of not in some kind of mutant monster abomination might give you a third arm kind of way. Yeah, you might be a little annoyed as well. Uh, Despite a lot of negative uh, press armed with moneymakers, RGBH and Roundup, Monsanto is doing very well. It rebrands itself as a life sciences company and then in 2002, also as an advertising company. And now it looks towards developing genetically modified seeds. Monsanto developed GM seeds that would resist its own herbicide Roundup, offering farmers a convenient way to spray fields with weed killer without affecting crops. And then they're selling both the shit at the same people. Business-wise, it's pretty genius. Uh, And there are a lot of benefits to these seeds. Uh, By using Roundup-ready soybean seeds, a farmer can spend less time tending to the fields. With Monsanto seeds, farmer plants their crop, treats it later with Roundup to kill the weeds, takes the place of labor-intensive weed control and plowing. Excuse me. As uh, so, Monsanto patents the seeds, making them intellectual property, as companies do all the time with their products. Right? Not exactly in this case. For nearly all of its history, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office had refused to grant patents on seeds specifically, viewing them as life forms with too many variables to ever be patented. But then, in 1980, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a five-to-four decision, turned seeds into intellectual property, laying the groundwork for a handful of corporations to begin taking control of the world's food supply. In its decision, the court extended patent law to cover a live human-made microorganism. In this case, the organism wasn't even a seed. Uh, Rather, it was Sodomonas bacterium uh, developed by General Electric to clean up oil spills. The precedent was now set. Monsanto then took advantage of it. Since the 1980s, Monsanto has become the world leader in genetic modification of seeds and has won 674 biotechnology patents, more than any other company. But again, well pointed at as being evil, is that even immoral at all? I mean, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office used to refuse to grant patents to seeds, viewing them as life forms with too many variables to ever be patented, but that was before modern science figured out how to genetically modify food. Times changed, and so did patents. Uh, while pushing his GM agenda, Monsanto was also buying up conventional seed companies. 
In 2005, Monsanto paid $1.4 billion for Seminus, which controlled 40% of the U.S. market for lettuce, tomatoes, and other vegetable and fruit seeds. Two weeks later, it announced the acquisition of the country's third largest cottonseed company, uh, Emergent Genetics, for $300 million. Monsanto's acquisitions fueled explosive growth, transforming the St. Louis-based corporation into the largest seed company in the world. And then Monsanto did use its enormous size to start bullying people around. Since these GMOs are technically pieces of technology and Monsanto has the patents to, you know, to this technology, this enabled them to be able to go after anyone they thought might be infringing on their intellectual property. Uh, even saving seeds from the year before instead of buying new ones now counted as theft according to Monsanto. Farmers who buy Monsanto's patented Roundup Ready seeds are required to sign an agreement promising not to save the seed produced after each harvest for replanting or to sell the seed to other farmers. This means that farmers have to buy new seed every year. Those increased sales, coupled with ballooning sales of Roundup, have been a fucking bonanza for Monsanto. Uh, as a 2008 article in Vanity Fair would report, Monsanto goes after farmers, farmers co-ops, seed dealers, anyone who suspects may have infringed its patents of genetically modified seeds. As interviews and reams of court documents reveal, Monsanto relies on a shadowy army of private investigators and agents in the American heartland to strike fear into farm country. They fan out into fields and farm towns where they secretly videotape and photograph farmers, store owners, co-ops, infiltrate community meetings, gather intel about informants, about farming activities. And this seems pretty fucked up. This is one of the reasons why anti-monopoly laws were originally passed to prevent any one company from being able to completely fucking dominate a business sector like this and eliminate the competition. In this scenario, the consumer always suffers, right? This type of capitalism reminds me in a weird way of communism. But instead of the state telling you how, how you have to live your life, well, now the corporation does. I mean, take what Monsanto is doing here and apply it to, say, clean drinking water rights. Imagine that uh, Amazon or Walmart or Disney is able to buy up all or virtually all of the drinking water rights for an entire nation or region. And now if you want water to drink, you have to buy it from them, right? In this terrifying scenario, they fucking own you. They decide through their ability to price gouge, right? Price set, uh, ability to take uh, their product off the market at any time for any reason to literally decide if you live or die. No corporation obviously should be able to do anything like that. No corporation should have anywhere fucking close to that much power. Just like for another example, no one, no one landlord should be able to own all of the rentals in a giant portion of the country and then decide, you know, out of those who can't afford to buy a home, who gets to live inside and who can fuck off. It's outrageous. And that's why we need government regulation. I'm a big, uh, you know, or um, excuse me, I'm anti-big government, but only a fool is anti-all government. The common citizen does need protection from the Monsantos of the world because left to their own devices, their constant drive for more and more profit will squeeze the fucking life out of the rest of us. Farmers have said that some Monsanto agents pretend to be surveyors. Others confront farmers on their land, try to pressure them to sign papers, giving Monsanto access to their private records. Farmers have called them uh, the seed police, uh, the Gestapo, the mafia to describe their tactics. Farmers would even report never purchasing or buying Monsanto seeds, but getting a visit from the seed police anyway. When uh, some of a neighboring farmer's seeds happen to blow onto their property. I mean, they're fucking militant about this shit. When asked about these practices, Monsanto has declined to comment specifically other than to say that the company, they're just trying to protect their rights, right? They said that Monsanto spends more than $2 million a day in research to identify, test, develop, and bring to market innovative new seeds and technologies that benefit farmers. One tool in protecting this investment is patenting our discoveries and, if necessary, legally defending those patents against those who would choose to infringe upon them. And I do see what they're saying here. But while they spend $2 million a day, they also made, back in 2016, before they were acquired by Bayer, $2.3 billion in profit after over $15 billion in revenue that year. 
just point that out since their language, you know, kind of reads a little like, oh, woe is me. We have to go after farmers. We're hanging on by a fucking thread, you guys. After paying our executives and lawyers billions of dollars a year, we're hanging on by a thread, a still $2 billion in profit after for sure hiding a lot of more profit than that in a year thread. That's roughly $5.5 million a day in profit, by the way, after paying the $2 million a day in research. Uh, and their research made $12 million that year. And 19, or I'm sorry, and their CEO made $12 million that year and $19.5 million the following year. So they, they've been doing okay. Uh, now let's look at the product that Monsanto seeds are genetically modified to resist, Roundup. 2009, researchers found that one of Roundup's inert ingredients can kill human cells, particularly embryonic, placental, and umbilical cord cells. Another ingredient in Roundup, glyphosate, uh, talked about it a bunch earlier, would be found to have a link to cancers. Glyphosate's a non-selective herbicide, meaning it will kill most plants. It uh, prevents the plants from making certain proteins that are needed for plant growth. With it being used in parks, yards, and many different kinds of land across the country, it's easy to come in contact with. You can be exposed to glyphosate if you get it on your skin, in your eyes. Uh, you can breathe it in when you're using it. You might swallow some glyphosate if you eat or smoke after applying it to, uh, without washing your hands first. You may also be exposed if you just touch plants that are still wet with a little bit of spray. Uh, you can be exposed to glyphosate in your food. Many farmers use glyphosate products in their fields and orchards. They spray it on crops like corn and soybeans, spray it on non-GMO crops like wheat, barley, oats, and beans uh, to dry out the crops so they can harvest them sooner. It gets into foods early in the food chain before raw food is harvested and before it's processed. In one report from the California Science, uh, from California scientists and the World Health Organization, 43 of 45 oat-based products tested had it. Popular breakfast foods like Quaker Old Fashioned Oats and Cheerios had above average levels. It's, it's fucking everywhere. And short-term exposure to glyphosate isn't something you need to worry much about. Experts say it's less toxic than table salt. But long-term risk may be a concern. Scientists are divided on how much risk is involved. Reports show conflicting results. And keep in mind that uh, most studies involve animals, not people. Some studies suggest glyphosate may be linked to cancer. Others suggest there's no link. It's a controversial topic. The International Agency for Research on Cancer categorizes glyphosate as a probable but not definite carcinogen in humans. In 2020, the EPA released a statement that glyphosate does not pose a risk to humans as long as it's used according to directions. Also stated that it is unlikely that it causes cancer in humans. But there's also been a lot of overlap, again, between the EPA and Monsanto, that whole revolving door, right? Did Monsanto pay off the EPA to say that? Maybe, but I can't prove it. Despite the EPA's ruling, numerous studies do point to a clear uh, you know, causal link between Roundup and cancer, including the International Agency for Research on Cancers, 2015 finding that it's, you know, probably carcinogenic. The IARC is an intergovernmental agency forming part of the World Health Organization of the UN. And 2019, University of Washington researchers found that exposure to glyphosate-based herbicides like Roundup is associated with a 41% increased risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that doesn't look good at all. Uh, by the time Bayer bought Monsanto in 2018, thousands of lawsuits linking Roundup to the development of a form of cancer known as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has been filed in courts nationwide. Same year, in the first of these cases to go to trial, a California jury found in favor of Dwayne Johnson, 46-year-old groundskeeper who worked at a number of California schools. Johnson's attorneys argued that he developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma after using Roundup on the job and alleged a scientific connection between the product and the illness. Jury stopped short of finding a clear causal link between Johnson's use of glyphosate and his cancer, instead finding that Bayer Monsanto had failed to do enough to warn Johnson of the risk that Roundup could cause cancer, and Bear Monsanto was ordered to pay $289 million in damages. 
that award was twice uh, reduced on appeal, ended up at 20 and a half million. And then Bayer Monsanto's liability uh, was upheld both times. In May of 2019, a California jury ordered Bayer to pay $2 billion in punitive damages in a lawsuit filed by a couple who both developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma after using Roundup for over 30 years. Uh, the couple was also awarded another $55 million in compensa- compensatory damages. A few months later, the massive award reduced to $86.7 million after the judge concluded that the original judgment was significantly out of step with legal precedent. Yeah, that was a huge fucking amount of money there. Uh, in March 2019, a jury awarded $80 million, including $75 million in punitive damages, later cut to $20 million, to a plaintiff who used Roundup in his yard for over 25 years before developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. August 2020, it was reported that Bayer agreed to pay $10.9 billion to close the vast majority of U.S. lawsuits, claiming that Roundup causes cancer. After more than a year of talks, the German drugs and pesticides maker reached agreement with around 75% of the current Roundup plaintiffs, involving some 125,000 filed and unfiled claims. Then in October of 2021, Bayer won its first Roundup-related verdict when a California jury held that the company was not responsible for a child's development of uh, Burkitt's lymphoma finding that household use around Roundup was not a substantial cause of the child's illness. December 21, uh, 2021 then saw Bayer win a second straight Roundup verdict when a jury in San Bernardino decided that the plaintiff's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma not caused by exposure to Roundup. So where does that leave us with Roundup? Well, Roundup has not been subject to any widespread product recall. You can get it all over the place. For the time being, it's on uh, store shelves nationwide. July of 2021, Bayer announced that it will uh, remove glyphosate-based Roundup from the consumer market in 2023, The German manufacturing giant hopes that the move will take some of the air out of its ballooning liability over its popular product. This move is being made exclusively to manage litigation risk and not because of any safety concerns, a statement added, insisting that its products have been safe all along. So what will a glyphosate-free roundup look like? According to a statement by Bayer, new formulations will rely on alternative active ingredients subject to review and approval from the U.S., EPA, and state safety agencies. Okay, now let's zoom out. We've heard a lot about Bayer and Monsanto, right? And everything we've heard, uh, or after everything we've heard, do they deserve the title of most evil company in the world or do they conduct themselves pretty typically for a giant multinational corporation? To get some perspective, let's compare them to two other supposedly evil corporations, right? Looking at the uh, pharmaceutical market uh, or chemical engineering company specifically, another candidate for most evil on a lot of internet lists is DuPont. Uh, per acid, holy shit, or PFOA, commonly used in the creation of Teflon nonstick pans, Gore-Tex, and other slippery waterproof substances uh, or surfaces. It's cheap, convenient, and for years was DuPont's biggest moneymaker. They called it C8, and it is extremely bad for you. DuPont first started dabbling in the Teflon business in 1953. When they purchased large amounts of PFOA from the 3M company, Although 3M had provided strict rules on how to dispose of the stuff, incinerate it, or treat it as chemical waste, DuPont somehow managed to pump hundreds of thousands of pounds of C8 straight into the fucking Ohio River and bury a further 7,100 tons of it in unlined sludge pits. They dumped PFOA into the environment from 1951 all the way until 2003. Pretty blatant fuck up. DuPont didn't take 3M's word that C8 was unsafe and they ran their own tests while also disposing of it recklessly. In 1961, their scientists discovered the chemical increased the size of the liver in rabbits, dogs, and rats and kept dumping that shit in the river and elsewhere. 1981, they discovered the chemical could cause birth defects in rats, kept dumping it into the environment. Then they moved into uh, human testing, kind of. They uh, studied people working in one of their Teflon plants in Parkinsburg, West Virginia, 
Seven pregnant employees in DuPont's Teflon division were monitored, unbeknownst to them, by corporate scientists. Two of them gave birth to babies with eye defects that would be directly attributed to working with those chemicals. Two out of seven. That's bad. One of those stories is the story of Sue Bailey, a former DuPont employee who gave birth to a son with severe deformities. Her son, William Bailey, uh, known as Bucky, born with half a nose, one nostril, serrated eyelid, keyhole pupil, where his iris and retina were detached. Sue's work for DuPont required her to come into direct contact with C8. Her job involved working in a large room with huge cylinders filled with C8. The cylinders would bubble over like an out-of-control bubble bath, according to the film. Uh, The Teflon uh, production process left behind a discharge of water. It was Sue's job to pump it up back where it would flow, you know, directly into the river and fuck up who knows what else. As part of a class action suit on behalf of more than 3,500 plaintiffs, it appears that Sue's son, Bucky, eventually got part of his $671 million settlement related to all this uh, settled in 2017. And and I referenced film. Uh, A film was made about what DuPont did here, released in 2019 called Dark Water, starring Mark Ruffalo. Have not seen it, but it looks like it's good. Uh, By the 1990s, Mark Mark Ruffalo is fucking great. Uh, By the 1990s, DuPont discerned that C8 causes all kinds of unpleasant cancers. But Teflon was a billion-dollar business for DuPont, so, you know, they continue with business as normal. In 2012, a seven-year study by third-party scientists jointly appointed by DuPont and the plaintiffs of their arguably too many lawsuits confirmed that C8 causes a whole list of human health concerns, ranging from cancer to high cholesterol, pregnancy complications, thyroid disease, and ulcerative colitis. And that led to them paying a $675 million payout. More lawsuits are pending currently. Uh, DuPont agreed to uh, casually phase out C8 by 2015, but it still makes Teflon. It replaced C8 with a new chemical called Gen X, which is already turning up in waterways. So that's fun. How bad will that turn out to be? Animal studies conducted by DuPont have already found tumors in rats exposed to Gen X and tumors, uh, tumors similar to those in rats exposed to C8. Different name, slightly different chemical composition, but maybe the same old poison. Uh, Whether it's just as bad or even worse than C8 remains to be seen. So, you know, it's just like Roundup and many of Bayer's products. Not uh, comforting necessarily to think that Bayer is not alone in all this. Might be more comforting if Bayer were truly the most evil company instead of one immoral company amongst many. Uh, The Slate.com posted an article called The Evil List in January of 2020 listing the 30 most dangerous companies ranked by the people you know. Number one on that fucking list? Yeah, you betcha. Bear Pharmaceuticals, the only corporation in the world with the balls to admit we are full-on fucking evil. Uh, No. Number one is Amazon. Uh, Here is their description of the massive online retailer. The online bookseller has evolved into a giant of retail, resale, meal delivery, video streaming, cloud computing, fancy produce, original entertainment, cheap human labor, smart home tech, surveillance tech, and uh, surveillance tech for smart homes. The company is sophisticated enough in learning our habits to produce countless Amazon Basics knockoffs of popular products and sloppy enough about policing this platform to allow in tons of actual knockoffs. And here's their evidence of uh, Amazon being not so great. The company's last mile shipping operation has led to burnout, injuries, and deaths, all connected to a warehouse operation that, while paying a decent minimum wage, is so efficient in part because it treats its human workers like robots who sometimes get bathroom breaks to say nothing of the carbon footprint, the negative tax bill, the debasing HQ2 reality show, and a huge chunk of the web's reliance on Amazon web services. As the anti-monopoly crowd has criticized Amazon ever more loudly for its dominance of online retail, the company has pointed out that it still has a smaller share of total retail than Walmart. And now here's their evidence of them being full fucking evil. 
Even after Amazon's HQ2 contest ended with the company abandoning one of the two winning sites amid blowback from New Yorkers who were upset at the deal's $1.7 billion price tag, dealing a rare blow to the far too common practice of generous government subsidies for corporate expansions, Amazon is still at it. While it will open a new ca- uh, while it- while it will open a new New York City office in 2021, sans handouts, in early January, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uncovered a $19.7 million taxpayer-funded deal to open a warehouse in Gwinnett County, Georgia. And here's more evidence of them being so evil, sent in by Slate's readers. While other companies may be guilty of some of these, Amazon has one, contributed to the death of local stores, services, journalism, music, community, etc. around the world. Two, focused on precarious and disskilled labor with reportedly terrible working conditions. Three, supported police surveillance with its ring doorbells and surveillance more generally with Alexa devices. Four, racked up a massive carbon footprint with rapid shipping as well as AWS cloud-based computing. Five, contributed tech to military and intelligence agencies with dubious human rights records, including U.S. Customs and Border Protection, operations separating families at our own border. Five, failed to moderate what it is what's on its platform resulting in a glut of dangerous uh, fakes such as easily broken counterfeit car seats for children. Six has a famously hostile workplace culture, which has been shown to contribute to harassment of women and minorities. And seven evaded taxation, excuse me, with shady categorization of assets and offshore tax havens. Um, more specifically and recently, what Amazon has come under fire for is, is uh, trying to stop workers from unionizing. Amazon's been accused recently of illegally firing workers in Chicago, New York, and Ohio, calling the police on workers in Kentucky, New York, and retaliating against workers in New York and Pennsylvania. And what workers say is an escalation of long-running union-busting activities by the company. Okay, so is Bear, a.k.a. Bear Monsanto, not alone in doing some shit that is, at the very least, ethically questionable? But are they all that evil or par for the course? I mean, the Nazi shit is bad, real bad, but how many other big corporations have Nazi connections? Documents discovered in both German and American archives have revealed that in certain instances, American managers of both GM and Ford went along with the conversion of their German plans to military production at a time when U.S. government documents showed that they were still resisting calls by Roosevelt to step up military production in plants in America. Uh, said Miriam Kleinman back in 1998, a uh, researcher with the Washington law firm of Cohen, Milstein, and Hosfield, who spent weeks examining records at the National Archives in an attempt to build a slave labor case against Ford. When you think of Ford, you think of baseball and apple pie. You don't think of Hitler having a portrait of Henry Ford on his office wall in Munich. When American GIs invaded Europe in June of 1944, they did so in jeeps, trucks, and tanks manufactured by the big three motor companies in one of the largest crash militarization programs ever undertaken. And then it came as an unpleasant surprise when they discovered the enemy also driving trucks manufactured by Ford and Opel, a 100% G-owned, or G, God, a 100% GM-owned subsidiary and flying Opel-built warplanes. And they found evidence of Chrysler involvement as well. Uh, when the U.S. Army liberated the Ford plants in Cologne and Berlin, they found destitute foreign workers confined behind barbed wire and company documents extolling, quote, the genius of the Fuhrer. Uh, Ford making that Nazi money, profiting off the Holocaust, it appears. But I still drive a Ford F-150, should I? All right, the auto company uh, now known as Audi also once profited off concentration camp labor. So did BMW. IBM helped Hitler in his Third Reich from the very beginning, from 1933 through the end of 1945. IBM technology facilitated the regime's generation and tabulation of punch cards for national census data, military logistics, ghetto statistics, train traffic management, i.e. Holocaust, and concentration camp capacity. The company bid for the right to get census contracts with the Fuhrer well into the Holocaust. 
And I could go on and on with Nazi associations of modern companies. I could list one company after another uh, who has exploited workers, poisoned customers, you know, been tough on unions, et cetera, et cetera. Think about Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic. Is Bayer worse, more evil than Purdue Pharma? The sad truth is that massive international corporations always looking to grow their market share and create more and more profit to raise that stock price, almost inevitable. They're going to do some immoral shit, right? Being good people doesn't grow the bottom line, unfortunately. Making fuckloads of money does. Does that mean you shouldn't care uh, who does what because they're all bad? No, no, I don't want to say that at all. You should do your own research on corporate watchdog organizations. Try and support the most ethical corporations you can. Some are far more ethical than others. But if you're looking for a massive multi-billion dollar international corporation free from sin, well, good fucking luck finding that one. Uh, Today's episode did not freak me out or fire me up about Bear or Monsanto as much as I I thought it would in some kind of like evil way. It got me fired up in like anti-monopoly law way. Like, you know, it just reminded me uh, also why governmental oversight is so important. It reminded me that it is important to vote for politicians who at least don't seem afraid to stand up to these giants and hinder their ability to become too powerful to dominate a market so thoroughly. Because once they get enough money, they will fuck us over. If the math makes it worth it for hundreds or thousands of us to die or have our children born with birth defects, they will hide that from us for as long as they can. And then once caught, fight us in court to make sure that after all the settlements have been awarded, they have still made profit selling us poison. We had to collectively be vigilant against these motherfuckers and sound the alarm when we can. Boycott them whenever possible when they've crossed various ethical lines. Where, where that line is, is different for everybody. Today's episode also reminders to support small businesses whenever possible. If we don't, they will go bankrupt. And someday, maybe we will live in some kind of fucking Wally world or a world where nothing but gigantic, multifaceted international corporations that own entire medical fields and manufacturing sectors exist. You know, we can go to nothing but chain restaurants and shop at nothing but chain grocery stores. And I'm not anti-chains even, by the way, but I do try to also shop at local places. You know, we go to the farmer's market. We buy from smaller online sellers in addition to making uh, the easy purchase at Amazon. You know, we do have to be watchful of politicians. Do they seem like they're in bed with corporations that are they're supposed to be protecting us from? Constant vigilance. Meet Zach's. I wish I had an easier answer. But constant vigilance, limiting or, or eliminating our support for corporations and politicians whose values don't align with ours. Thankfully, you know, on the internet, you can look into a lot of companies. You, there are a lot of good watchdog groups, too many to name here. Uh, money talks. Money is what drives all the bears and Monsantos of the world to do what they do. And taking away their money is the best way to correct their behavior, whether through no longer personally supporting them through lawsuits, uh, through voting out politicians who maybe give them ridiculous tax breaks or refuse to punish them. Greed meets sex. It's not always good. Now, despite what uh, Gordon Gecko said, it was uh, it'll always exist and it will always lead to the kind of atrocities we have covered here today. We will never defeat it, but we can at least somewhat contain it through continual vigilance and economic and punitive actions. Hail Nimrod and keep a fucking eye out for Bear Pharmaceuticals, the only corporation in the world with the balls to admit we're full on fucking evil bitches. Time now for today's top takeaway, top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Bear has had its share of controversies in its over 100-year-long history. Beginning as a dye manufacturer in Germany, it participated in some of the biggest atrocities of the Holocaust, including human experimentation in Auschwitz. Also, many years later, knowingly sold HIV-tainted blood to hemophiliacs who needed life-saving medication. 
Number two, Bayer acquired Monsanto in 2018. And with that, another long history of controversy. Monsanto began as an artificial sweetener manufacturer in St. Louis before becoming one of the world's biggest bioengineering companies, mostly in the field of genetically engineering cows and crops to be able to produce more, cheaper, with a longer shelf life. Monsanto has also dumped chemical waste into several American cities, repeatedly denied that Roundup, their weed killer, was toxic, even as researchers found evidence to the contrary, and has basically fought tooth and nail to make sure that they're calling all the shots in the agricultural business, leaving smaller farmers to struggle in an overly competitive market. Number three, how do companies like Bayer and Monsanto get away with some of the shady shit they do? Well, they simply have so much money. It's easy for them to hire infinite numbers of lawyers to do things like block media criticism, take their critics to court, donate to associations to endorse their products, and so on. A proven revolving door between these companies, the EPA and the FDA, probably doesn't hurt either. Number four, many companies are responsible for a whole host of misdeeds, not just Bayer. Another chemical company, DuPont, spread poisonous C8 for years and years while denying it was responsible for serious birth defects, cancer, and long-lasting health implications. And numerous companies like Ford and IBM did a lot of business with Hitler. And number five, new info. Next up on our roster of evil companies, this shit is ridiculous. It's darkly funny to me. It's just so absurd. Uh, 1999, the big legal drug cartel, Philip Morris, courted officials of the Czech Republic by explaining how smoking would in fact help their economy due to the reduced healthcare costs because its citizens would die sooner. <laughs> Seriously, this is fucking real. It's a real thing they tried. Uh, the Czech Republic had uh, earlier issued complaints that smoking-related healthcare costs were a huge drain in their economy. And then Philip Morris, batshit insane PR department, chose to address this issue by releasing a study that showed that while the country did indeed lose some money because of smoking, ultimately left with the net gain of $147 million a year Thanks in large part to direct tax revenue and indirect savings on healthcare and pensions because cigarettes were killing people off. Uh huh. A fucking cigarette company suggested it was doing a country a favor by killing off citizens, right? Saving them some uh, money in pensions and healthcare costs. And financially, you know, they're not wrong. Money, money, money. It's all they fucking care about. Philip Morris uh, produced similar studies for Canada and the Netherlands and were in the process of, of commissioning studies in Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Slovenia. Uh, that was all uh, brought to a halt, thankfully, when the Czech Republic rejected the, the premise wholesale. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Bear, the most evil corporation in the world, has been sucked. Uh, thanks for picking that topic, uh, Space Lizards. That was a, uh, a fun, different thing to learn about. Uh, and also thank you to the queen of bad magic, Lindsay Cummins, continually impressed by her work ethic. And hard-loving nature. She puts uh, so much effort into everything she does. I love it. Rare and wondrous quality. Uh, thanks also to uh, Logan, another hardworking meat sack, for directing and producing today. And to yet another hard worker, Tyler C., our suck ranger, for uh, for helping him. Thanks also to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app. They're fucking lazy. No, they work hard too. Uh, they are Warlock, Logan, Keith again for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com for helping run our socials along with the suck ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman, who is lazy and an idiot. No, he's great. He's smart and hardworking. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans, again, with initial research this week, even though she's lazy and worthless. <laughs> why do you, I don't know why this is stupid. It's stupid, funny for me. No, she's, she's great also and hardworking. Uh, thanks to the All Seeing Eyes, moderating the Cult of Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and the Bad Magic subreddit. Next week, in honor of this spooky season, 
The season when a killer lurking just out of sight doesn't seem quite as outlandish as other times when it starts to get a little, little darker, a little earlier every day, shrouding the streets in darkness while hopefully you're safe inside in honor of the approach of Halloween. We're going to cover a figure so terrifying it could be his own movie monster. And uh, he would have been his own movie monster if he had had his way. In the mid-70s, around the same time, notorious serial killer Ted Bundy crossed the country kidnapping and murdering young women. Another suspected serial killer that some have also described as handsome and charming was terrorizing victims in Florida, Georgia, and elsewhere. His name was Paul John Knowles. He later came to be known as the Casanova Killer. Why? Because he was handsome and could be polite and charming. As a journalist who came to know him very intimately would say he was a dreamboat who looked like a cross between Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. But underneath that good-looking facade was a fucking monster, a man who would kill nearly 20 people, men, women, children, ranging from six to the elderly, brutalize them in a, in a variety of ways, occasionally stole their possessions, always seemed to be just out of grasp of police officers' hands as he embarked on a crime spree that would last seven months and carry him across multiple states. One former investigator said just about everywhere he went, he left a body. And the reason he killed? He wanted to be famous, to be infamous. To show the world that he was the baddest, most evil motherfucker of them all. So who was Paul John Knowles? How did he manage to evade the police on his murder spree? And why is his tale somewhat lost to history? All this next week on another evil edition of Time Suck. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Sponsored by Bear. Uh, first up, a shout-out request that really caught my attention. Thanks to the subject line of anal bleeding and acid trips. <laughs> Sweet sack Lauren Hall knows how to get a guy's attention. Lauren writes, what's up, Master Sucker? I apologize for the intense subject line. <laughs> but I had to pick something outlandish to catch your attention. Yeah, well done. I'm writing this email in the hopes that you and old Albert Fish will give my best friend Axel a huge congratulations shout-out on his engagement to the love of his life, Courtney. He's been one of my best friends since we were in high school, and I credit the suck for bringing his and I's friendship back together. We got to hang out for the first time in a few years at your recent show in Nashville and had the best time. Can you also get some credit for losing over 150 pounds? Picture attached. I just can't talk highly enough about this guy. Anyway, sorry for the long email and run-on sentences. Hopefully this makes it on the show, but it's okay if it doesn't. Keep up all the good work. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Your loyal space lizard, Lauren. You are so nice, Lauren. Uh, I got your photo of Axel in the next email you sent. And dude, well done, Axel. Damn. You look like a completely different person. 150 pounds is incredible. I hope you feel so good. I imagine you do. Hope your quality of life has improved immensely. You handsome fella. Your fiance looks adorable as well. Unless that's Lauren. Then she looks adorable. You know what? Everyone's fucking sexy. Uh, enjoy the engagement. I hope you nearly drown in peanut butter, hot apple cider, showbiz. That's how they do it in Nashville. And now for another shout out request because it's fucking awesome. As is the author, Marvelous Meat Sack, Nat, who writes, Hey there, big chief suckety suck, mushmouth supreme. Dan the man with the plan keeps the ladies comments. Uh, Nat here, I just got to say thanks for making time suck and cold to the curious too. I suffer from severe depression and anxiety as well as complex PTSD amongst other things. I'm disabled and on fixed income, excuse me, and I live in a rural area in northern Minnesota. I really don't have much human contact because I've had shitty luck with socializing. The loneliness gets really bad at times and coupled with intrusive thoughts, it's caused suicidal ideations and much uh, and more and more than one attempt. 
Your podcasts have been a real light in a very dark existence for me. And I can honestly say time suck and the cult of the curious too helped save my life because I was teetering on the edge of contemplating taking all my pills and taking a dirt nap. But I didn't go through with it because I didn't want to miss your podcast. I can't remember exactly what episode it was, but I do remember it wasn't long after I started listening and I started right before the pandemic hit. Time suck, scared to death, and is we dumb, rest in peace, have helped me feel less alone and Cult the Curious 2 actually helped me make a few friends. I want to give a shout out to a fellow time sucker and awesome veteran meat sack, Jack Wickham. We made first contact after he posted about his own heartache and asked for support. We exchanged numbers and have been chatting off and on ever since. I'm also including a picture of my cat, Valentine, because I think he's Michael Meowther-fucking-McDonald. Well done, Nat. Well, Nat, uh, I am so glad you're still here, and so is Jack, and so are countless others, I have no doubt, especially Valentine Meowther-fucking-McDonald. A very cute fur baby, by the way. Looks super chill, but who knows? Cats are unpredictable. Uh, so glad that you're taking advantage of the community around this podcast to make some new friends. So many different time suckers, scared-to-death-related Facebook groups out there, uh, there's Discord, uh, you know, the subreddits on Reddit. Hail Nimrod to you. I, I hope you've made peace with uh, summer uh, going away and prepared for another Minnesota snow season because winter's coming. And I hope you're as happy right now as you uh, seem to have been when you wrote that message. Uh, I had several messages this week calling me out for some cloud mockery. Uh, Jovial Sucker Joel was one of them and wrote, Dear Master Mushmouth and Bad Magic Team, so I'm currently running through the back catalog of Is We Dumb and just got to episode 11. This is important. I just finished the uh, recent cult suck uh, before switching over and want to say that if the worst for Japan is a lot of rain, it's already happening. Lived there for two years and boy, can that place get wet. Anyhow, you talked about having clouds thrown at you and just being able to laugh it off. And I agreed with you. Then I get to the end of the Is We Dumb's episode's uh, neat fact. And it's about how the average cumulus cloud weighs roughly 1.1 million pounds. Seriously, Dan, how could you be so dumb as to forget an important fact from almost two years ago? Wow, so not impressed. Might have to stop listening to all this garbage. Anyways, love getting to see you live in Nashville on my birthday with my bro, who was the slurper, and my cousin. I was a guy in a subtle pink leopard shirt. Sorry for the big, uh, sorry for the many big words and long email. Three out of five, keep on sucking. Well, at least you didn't use medical terms. Uh, Sergeant Postman, Joel. Well, Joel, uh, funny message, dude. Glad you had fun of the show, even though you had to sit next to a disgusting fuck of a slurper. You know what? I don't care how much they weigh. I'm still not afraid of clouds. Yeah, maybe they're super heavy, but are they super dense or like water, but softer where you just slide into that weight? So you know what? Still, fuck clouds. Clouds can't stop bare pharmaceuticals. We'll fucking destroy all clouds. Who cares about the consequences? No rain anymore? We have enough money to build a spaceship and you can all suck our dicks as we fly into the galaxy. Uh, now let's end on an awesome George Carlin update from an awesome sucker, beautiful bastard Brock. I didn't intend to push that button as many times today. By the way, I'm drunk with power on my bear button. Uh, Brock writes, hey, sock master, I'm going to start with my fluffy bullshit. So you have to read it to get, my, to get to my Carlin story, which you're going to want to read. Sorry about the length, but you're welcome for the girth. Well played. Found your podcast in early 2021 and burned through the catalog quickly. I just changed careers, went from a longtime bartender with a pretty decent shift to a trimmer at a cannabis farm with dreams of working my way up and out of the trim room. Plants are my passion, and it was time to chase that passion. Well, you picked some good plants to do it with. Uh, it's been a struggle, but after a year in that position, I got my promotion and now listen to the suck while watering and pruning uh, a couple thousand plants a day. Damn. I'm currently binging scared to death. My six-year-old son's name is Ash from Evil Dead. Two-year-old daughter is Annabelle. Holy shit, that's awesome. 
and old sucks until Mondays at noon. My favorite day of the week. Oh, that's nice. I was working at Harris in Laughlin, Nevada. I love this story. I re- yeah, obviously I've read this before. This is such a good story. I uh, was working here when the HA and Mongols, oh yeah, the Hells Angels Mongols shooting went down. Oh, damn, from the Hells Angels suck. More Toots Martinez, please. Oh yeah, what's going on with Toots Martinez? I uh, got to get with my uh, my fellow writers, get a clubhouse in Cleveland. I uh, worked in a few departments, but uh, I was lucky to be in entertainment at the time, so I have a little inside info. Someone had checked out his uh, new material, Carlin's ahead of the show, found out one of his jokes to be out of the comfort zone for some of our older and wealthier clientele. These people really will do anything that's been comp to them. Uh, I've heard complaints that ZZ Top was too loud for fuck's sake. Jesus. Um, the GM asked that this one joke be left out. So showtime. <laughs> so yeah, the GM has told Carlin, just please don't do that joke. Uh, George enters the amphitheater stage, approaches his stool with a little stack of cue cards and a bottle of water on it while barely making eye contact with the crowd, goes to the mic. First thing he says is, you know what nobody ever talks about anymore? Pussy farts. <laughs> George opens and drinks from his water, casually flips through his notes. Meanwhile, the GM is blowing his fucking lid to the point of mouth foam. Almost ends the show right then and there, but the show goes on. I have never seen so many walkouts of any show fucking ever. Thought it was hilarious and legendary, and I loved every minute. Side note for my best friend, Dan, whose voice I hear more than my wife and children. You're like a year older than me, and our birthdays are one day apart, and we were younger, lived less than 100 miles from one another, and if I ever see you live, I'm going to fangirl the fuck out. Not crying, you're crying. JK, gosh dang, three out of five stars. Thank you for all that you do. I have uh, so much more to say, but I'll save it for another email. Sincerely, one grateful meat sack, Brock Cameron. Well, thank you, Brock. God, I love that Carlin story so much. Ah, I look forward to uh, hopefully having similar moments myself someday. I've had some crazy ones in the past. Too much to get into now. Uh, but how dare that dumb fuck casino GM ask a legend not to be themselves. Glad Carlin let him have it. You know what? If you can't take a joke like that, you're a fucking idiot to go to that show. Uh, have a great week, little brother that I haven't met yet. You're a young man, Brock. Young man. I'll see you down the road. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast is done. Please don't give anyone a fatal disease or birth defect in order to make some extra cash this week. Keep on trying to make money in a slightly more ethical way. And while you do so, keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. So do you enjoy our sponsorship from Bayer Pharmaceuticals? If you didn't, we don't give a fuck. We don't need time suck. We don't need podcasts. All we need is fucking poison. Maybe it'll kill you. Maybe it'll cure you. Don't care. All I care about is that it costs a lot of fucking money. Stick it in your eye. Fucking drink it. Shove it up your ass. Shove it up your fucking pussy. Don't care. Bear Pharmaceuticals. I would fucking literally sell your fucking family to serial killers if I could make $5. I would have every person in your family have to suck a thousand dicks and then get their heads cut off if it made me a shiny fucking nickel. Bear Pharma. Why did my music stop? There you go. It's easier to be evil if you have evil music. I learned that at Bear Pharma School. Fucking opening day. 
Day two, we killed a thousand sex workers just for the fucking fun of it, set them on fire. Why? Because it was fucking fun when you don't have a soul. This morning, I fucking kicked a baby down three flights of stairs and then fucking stomped its head in because I wanted to see if I could sell his diaper to a homeless person. Bear Pharma. What other evil shit can I say? Sometimes I wake up and just fucking put a freshly killed puppy's fucking skin on my face because it feels good. Oftentimes, I will walk around my neighborhood and throw rocks at children. Bear Pharma. What does this have to do with profit? I don't know. Maybe I had a fucking stroke. I don't care because I have so much goddamn money I can handle any lawsuit you can throw at me. I can't wait to get a fucking spaceship and nuke the whole fucking world and go make money off some other race that aren't as fucking stupid and pathetic as all you pieces of shit. Bear Pharma, suck my fucking dick. Suck your fucking dick. Don't fucking suck a dick if you like it. I don't want you to do anything fun. I want you to suffer with Bear Pharma. <laughs> yeah. The other stuff too. Hope your food's cold when you want it to be warm. Hope sometimes when you're laying in bed at night, you can't get the, the covers to quite cover your toes. Even like you keep kicking, but you don't understand how the blankets could be that fucking complicated. It's just a sheet. Why can't you get it over? I'll tell you why. Because fucking Bear Pharma snuck into your goddamn house. We fuck with your sheets tonight. Fuck you. Bear Pharma. How is that awkward silence? BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 